Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this week's episode of Tales from the Crypt. A bit delayed this week. Had some uh, personal stuff going on in my life that uh, I had to take care of before getting this podcast out, uh, but very happy to do so. Had the pleasure of sitting down with Lee Quinn from Coindesk uh, for almost three hours. We hit on a lot. Uh, everything from the narratives going on in Bitcoin and Ethereum to how Bitcoin's being used to journalism covering the space, the uh, concept of uh, new media versus old media, uh, independent content creators, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Really enjoyed this conversation with Lee, even though we disagreed on a lot, um, which is what I'd like uh, for you freaks to get out of this conversation is the fact that we were able to disagree yet be civil with each other. It was uh, a very fun conversation. Um that uh, I think is uh, important to have, to see the other side, uh, to see another side, not the other side, another side of uh, what we're doing here and other perspectives, and I thought this was an incredible episode. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them, all right? They're helping us do many things. They're helping us stack sats, uh, send sats, receive sats. They're helping us stack slivers of stonks if you want to. And they're helping us uh, save money with their boost program. All right. Uh, we'll start with the stonks. All right. The cash app investing has hit the market. All right. If you have a favorite stock out there that you'd like to invest in, but it's a little bit too expensive to buy a whole share of that stock, cash app investing is now letting you buy as little as $1. All right. So you can you can uh, stack slivers of stonks. All right. And on top of that, they, you're still able to buy, sell, send, receive Bitcoin on the app and then the boost program. Uh, allows you to save money at merchants. I used my coffee boost today. Uh, saved a dollar at the coffee shop. Um, and then, so Cash App Investing is a Square subsidiary, member SIPC. Uh, remember, you don't have to wait four to five days to start investing uh, because Cash App is directly connected to your bank account. You can start investing, stacking sets, using the boost program today. And when you go to download the Cash App, make sure you use the code Stacking Sats. That's one word, S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. Owls Lacrosse. All right. Go download the Cash App today. Stacking Sats. Hope you guys enjoy this episode with Lee. I know I certainly did. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here. On a beautiful, it was a beautiful day. It's gotten a little, gotten a little bit more gray out on a Wednesday afternoon. Very excited for this conversation. Uh, second reporter we've had in in the studio before. Uh, up to this point, excuse me. I'd like to introduce you, freaks, the senior reporter from CoinDesk, Lee Quinn. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming by. This is uh, what's it been? When did we first meet here in Brooklyn? Was that like six months ago, seven months ago? Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. Had drinks, shooting the shit. That was a great conversation. We ate chicken. We ate some, we ate some fried chicken. If you freaks haven't been to the Commodore in Williamsburg, they got some really good good fried chicken. Good dive part, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to dive into a bunch of stuff here. But as is the uh, script here, at Tales from the Crypt, uh, what was your life like before Bitcoin? How did you get to Coindesk covering this beat particularly? Yeah, so I've been a journalist for a really long time, long before I heard about cryptocurrency. I got my first newspaper, print newspaper internship when I was 16 in high school. 
I've been working in the industry in some ways ever since. When I was 22, I moved to Israel and I worked in the Middle East for five years, mostly covering politics and culture. I came back to the US, uh, to New York specifically, around three years ago to be a sex writer. And I focused a little bit on the porn industry, um, reproductive rights, things related to gender issues. And from there, I got offered a position to help Newsweek Media Group at the time spearhead their new beat for blockchain technology. And I knew very, very little about, about Bitcoin, but was willing to help them by doing a lot of research. And I found it so challenging that I kept wanting to do it. And uh, three years later, here I am. So you've been writing for many publications about Bitcoin until you've settled at Coindesk, correct? So I wrote for Newsweek Japan, International Business Times, and Racked, which is was a subsidiary of Vox, uh, but mostly those. Yeah. So what's it like getting thrown into this beat and trying to understand uh, the technology, the quote-unquote space, the ecosystem, and the people involved? It's really hard. I will never forget the first time I write, tried to write a story about Ethereum. I had maybe like an hour and a half and my editor was trying to get me to write like, what is Ethereum? I remember I had maybe four phone calls to different people and by the end of them, I still didn't know what I was gonna tell my editor, what is Ethereum? I didn't know, there were all kinds of things people were throwing at me, words I'd never heard before for things that didn't make sense in the concrete world that I understood. Uh, so I'd say it's really, really challenging to come into this with no computer science background and try and figure out how to write about it. Yeah, I don't even think Ethereans know what Ethereum is yet. No, Ethereans do know what Ethereum is. It is a platform for executing computer functions that they think can change the world. Yeah, that's very vague. It is very vague. Exactly. That was why it was hard to explain to my editor. Um, but the more that I work with that community, I understand how what they're thinking is a, an approach, a mentality, a philosophy that they want to apply to all things, while Bitcoin is very clear on what it is. Bitcoin is money. Like That's what it is. I thought ETH is money too, though. To some people, ETH is money. <laughs> <laughs> See, so what is ETH, right? Like, um, but I, we're not we're not here to dive into ETH. But yeah, maybe we can eventually. But uh, I think you'd find Ethereum has a lot more in common with Bitcoin than most Bitcoiners admit. Uh, well, what 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 do you think there is in common? So there's definitely a shared cultural ethos between the two communities, and there's a lot of people that overlap. I mean, a lot of people that overlap. Even some of the people that um, on Twitter are the loudest uh, hardliners in private, they own Ethereum, are interested in it, might have invested in something, might be using something. Uh, so I think in terms of the cultural ethos, like we have a community that's defined by these rules and ways we behave, that's very common between both Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they talk about each other in very similar ways. What do you mean like a defined community? Because that's the thing, Bitcoiners. Like so, to say, there isn't really no community. There's just Bitcoiners, right? So there's like 30 Bitcoin core developers on the planet? <laughs> no. Um, regular contributors to the project, routine contributors to the project, people that have had more than a few PRs. I mean, like consistent. Um, I think there was. Yeah? I think last year it was like over 1,000 contributing to the core repository. Yeah. Sure. So if you go to like um, any of like the Bitcoin core meetups uh, that they usually have around the world around things like breaking Bitcoin or scaling Bitcoin, it's not a thousand people there. It's generally maybe 30 to 40 guys that have been doing this for a very long time. Um, that doesn't mean Bitcoin definitely does have more robust contribution. You could have like up to a thousand people that are, you know, like doing a little bit here, a little bit there. Ethereum has the same of that. Uh, I don't think that Bitcoin is quite as diverse in its 
main con contribution as people think it is. But that isn't, it, it is certainly the most decentralized cryptocurrency that we have in existence today, and no one's disputing that. But I definitely do think that Bitcoin is still at a place where it is a small group of people who generally know each other. Um, we, we do have a concept of, of tribes and communities that are bigger than 50 people. Like we know what that looks like, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what Bitcoin is right now. It's a tribe. Yeah. It's a tribe. Well, what, the people using Bitcoin may be a tribe, but what is Bitcoin, right? Yeah, that is true. What is Bitcoin? I think most of us see it as money. Most of us see it as digital money. But you're right that the way that it manifests in the world and the kinds of things that attracts around it and the way that people behave around it, it can be so many things. Yeah, it's a, a multifaceted tool. And that's where I think Bitcoiners uh, and Ethereans diverge. Uh, I think it's from first principles, right? Um, mm. I think uh, from a first principles standpoint, Ethereum uh, is not, uh, I don't want to say pure, but uh, is, is off the mark a bit, right? With a pre-sale, uh, a virtue signal out of the box that they're going to be the, uh, the energy-efficient blockchain as they transition to proof-of-stake, which has proven to be pretty, uh, pretty hard for them over time. Um, and, yeah, from first principles, that's, so that's me as a Bitcoiner. Um, my, bias, <laughs> my bias is out there. I'm a Bitcoin uh, bull. I think Bitcoin is... Uh, is one of the most important technologies in the world right now. And I agree with that. From an economic perspective, if it is to be money, I do think it will be a, a winner take most to all, and Bitcoin has the best chance of doing that. And that is because, from a first principles perspective, its launch, uh, the way its development community has uh, evolved over time, uh, is more pure. So I would definitely agree with the idea of a first principles difference. I think that Bitcoin, because it wants to be money, are, is very focused on simplicity, is very focused on the process as opposed to the end result, making sure that process is correct. While for Ethereum, they want to do all different kinds of things in all different kinds of ways because what they're trying to get at is changing the world, <laughs> right? So when you're trying to do that, that means that you, all different kinds of things can apply. Um, sometimes the ends might justify the means in some respects. I don't think that it's necessarily that... You don't think Bitcoin wants to change the world? I think some Bitcoiners want to change the world. And I very much believe that Bitcoin, Bitcoin can and, and hopefully will. But that... You don't it, think that Bitcoin can change the world? No, I think it can. I just don't think it will change the world in the way that most Bitcoiners believe it will. And that's precisely because they'll get too um, distracted by what they want that change to be, as opposed to watching the change that is actually happening. All right, so let's dissect this. What do you, what do you mean by that? So let's even start with some of the things that we heard and, and saw at the World Economic Forum, for example. Lots and lots of countries are very interested in issuing their own cryptocurrency, digitizing their economies so that all of our transactions are digitized and from a Bitcoiners perspective, monitored, uh, from a compliance perspective, they can encourage certain behaviors and discourage other kinds of behaviors. That is something... Uh, so when Bitcoiners imagine themselves being able to exist outside of the system, 
Uh, they will only be able to do so as long as they're not doing anything interesting enough to attract attention in that kind of system. Because that kind of system is all-encompassing. Like, if the state of Iran or the state of Russia can't get around certain laws, neither can you. Um, so Bitcoin is not necessarily a way to fight against the government as much as it might be useful for people who want to do some small things on their own, which can be completely lawful things. Um, but I don't think that the public, uh, how do I describe this? The bravado of the idea that we can be our own bank and resist authorities is realistic because we don't think about all the ways that banks and authorities impact aspects of our lives beyond the transaction itself. Bitcoin is decentralized, but all of you can still go to jail. So you think it's neutered out of the box? I think that... Hmm. I think if a nation state wanted to attack Bitcoin, it could and it would win. So the goal is to keep it from doing that. How would it do that? There's a million ways it could do that. Let's go through them. Um, so I'm really not great at the technical aspects, but I'm pretty sure that if someone were to do the kind of scale of mining that, say, the U.S. military does uh, when it comes to other kinds of programs. Like, if you have a, a force of several million people doing anything, you can override a network that's bootstrapped, just in general. Well, you have to think of the mechanics of how they would do that, right? They have to tap into the supply chain and get, get miners and plug them in mm -hmm. uh, to energy sources that, that Americans may be aware of and more particularly the, the overarching mining community would be aware that, that miners were drying up, right? And so... So let's even take mining aside and imagine that, I mean, the U.S. government could certainly, if it wanted to, spin up plenty of companies that didn't necessarily look like the U.S. government and did things that maybe weren't needing to be subject to public appeal. And just think about the channel through which we learn about Bitcoin and trade Bitcoin they are either heavily monitored and regulated, or they are subject to manipulation from propaganda. And we understand, we, like everyone knows that propaganda is out there and that it's a real issue, but everyone thinks it's only for the side that they don't like and don't realize that actually world leaders have for the past decade been looking at social media platforms and the platforms that we believe to be democratized and thinking about how to use them to influence people's behavior and drown out true noises of signal um, in all the noise, right? So if you were to go on to the platform where you usually trade and learn about Bitcoin and it just became unusable, then if you didn't have, you need to have a, an in-person human network for which to trade. And that's great. Like that's a thing that you can do. You can buy a ticket out. You can get food to get out. Would you be able to sustain your life in that way? Probably not. It seems to me you're highlighting like the, the, the pressing need for Bitcoin. Certainly. I believe it's one of the most important technologies that we've ever invented, and I believe that it could have an immense impact on the world. Um, but I don't think we're going to enter into this Bitcoin-induced utopia in which governments are suddenly going to start playing nice because they will be stripped of the power of fiat. Yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think governments are going to play nice at all. I think it's going to be a battle, uh, a war of the minds, if you will. I just think Bitcoin will inevitably win out because of its uh, nature. What nature is that? It's decentralized, distributed. Anybody can download a copy of the blockchain and run it if they have 
a computer that can download the software. That's all that matters. Yeah, that's a, that's a really cool aspect. That's, I think, one of my favorite things. I don't know. So every time I get really, I go through phases, right? It's, it's only been three years, and yet I've gone through many phases. And every time I get really excited about Bitcoin, and I think this is a, a really good solution for this problem, I end up spending a lot of time with people who I think would be in that user group, and they end up coming back to me with like, Lee, that's great. But so I'm going to be responsible now for my entire family's finances because there's no way in hell I'm going to get my mom to open up a terminal. Like we all know that user experience will get better and that these tools will evolve, that right now we're in the worst stage Bitcoin will be and that it only gets better from here. So I'm not saying that that argument is this is how it will always be. What I'm saying is that it's maybe important to like, they're, they know that too. They understand that technology evolves too. So when they, they come back to me with this of, Lee, I need my electricity from the government and the government easily shuts off my entire neighborhood in East Jerusalem, that I take that seriously and I need to think about like, okay, what is Bitcoin built on? Bitcoin is software. Software runs with electricity. If you turn off the electricity, very, very difficult to use Bitcoin. And that's true for all the things. And surely we'll all be in the streets fighting for beans. But what if that becomes your norm? What if that becomes decade upon decade of how your community lives? Well, that's the beauty of Bitcoin, right? Like if one government decides to do that, another can say, hey, we're not going to do that. And we're actually going to be open to it. And and that's not to say that the people under the oppressive government won't have access to Bitcoin. It is to say that it will survive, though. I genuinely think that Bitcoin will survive. It could survive. Who knows? It's still 10 years old and there's a lot to go there. But let's go with that. So some governments will say no, while others will say yes. What governments so far have been saying yes to Bitcoin? And I don't only mean that in a public persona. I mean that in also... Um, leaders of that government probably owning or dealing in Bitcoin, or I mean, uh, making rules that they know are easy to get around for certain reasons. You don't have to openly endorse Bitcoin in order to have that be a part of the de facto behind the scenes way your government operates. I don't think so far we've, we have seen, you know, um, the, uh, when I was in an, uh, the World Economic Forum, some world leaders uh, were curious. Um, the French economic minister, for example, gave me really smart answers when I asked him about the future of Bitcoin in his country. But nine times out of 10, most people told me that they don't want secret bank accounts. So anyone who is known to have Bitcoin will be con is considered high risk in their mind, which means that you're automatically going to be watched. <laughs> what kind of future is that? So like that, I think that's that's the beauty of Bitcoin too, is that it forces this conversation on the globe. Like, do we want to get cattle herded into a digital panopticon, or uh, do we want to give Bitcoin a fighting chance? And individually, uh, I think more and more people are trying are starting to decide. Like, hey, Bitcoin is the only way forward if we don't want to be cattle herded into this digital panopticon. Yeah, no, I definitely think that Bitcoin is a really promising technology and it's really exciting. I just think that when we're thinking about creating money, uh, the problem is sometimes are slightly technical, but are more often social. Uh, we need enough people to value Bitcoin and to know how to use Bitcoin in order to use it without surveillance systems. Yeah, and hasn't uh, the history of Bitcoin's price appreciation proven that more and more people are liking it and valuing it? 
I think there are definitely more and more people today that are that value Bitcoin. I wouldn't say that there are more people that use Bitcoin. It's really difficult because the data sets that we have are skewed, right? Like you'll see on local Bitcoins, like this amount of transactions skyrocket in this certain emerging market. But then you'll talk to the people on the ground and people will be like, we have no idea who's buying these. We don't have exchanges in our country, so we're all OTC. And usually when that happens, that means that there was one whale or a person who had access to a lot of local fiat who bought in. And it makes it look like everyone in that country was buying in. But really, there's one person, we have no idea who they are, and they were able to move a market by themselves. So if you're the person who controls the printing of fiat in your country, you can influence the Bitcoin market in ways that other people don't understand that that's not to negate Bitcoin. That doesn't mean that Bitcoin's not important. It just means that we have this image of Bitcoin as this rogue technology only being used by the little guys when so far a lot of the evidence suggests that there's all different kinds of people using Bitcoin and they don't all necessarily adhere to the idea of privacy and freedom for other people. They might they might like it for themselves, uh, but they may not support policies that allow other people access to that same market. No, I've talked about it on this podcast a lot. Like Venezuelan government is definitely buying Bitcoin. That's what they're sending people to local Bitcoins. Uh, um, I think it's an educated guess. I would say that's a very educated guess. No, it's, um, God damn it. Why is his name slipping my mind right now? Um, Yeah, so uh, I had Mauricio Di Bartolomo, I always butcher his last name, Di Bartolo, Bartolomo uh, on the podcast oh, yeah, from London.io. And he um, he was a miner in Venezuela, and mm-hmm. obviously the Venezuelan government uh, confiscated uh, a lot of mining equipment um, and used it with their free oil. Um, so I would, with a high degree of certainty, say that, uh, or high degree of confidence, excuse me, that the Venezuelan government owns Bitcoin, is using Bitcoin, um, and uh, is, yeah, like there's despotic governments that are using uh, Bitcoin. I'd say that's an educated guess, and I would even venture as far to say that they're probably not the only ones. No, I wouldn't be surprised if Russia has it, um, other countries, North Korea even, China, with a bunch of, uh, with a bunch of their... Uh, with a bunch of mining in the country. Uh, I just think uh, the PBOC isn't paying attention or at least hoarding some themselves. Uh, Again, this is all speculation, but those are the countries on my list that I I believe would be holding Bitcoin. And that, yes, so you were mentioning Venezuela. uh, A lot of these countries are despotic and spy on all their citizens, and they they, uh, probably would like to hinder them from using Bitcoin as well, but that is just the nature of the beast, right? I think Bitcoin is really promising, and I hope that by paying attention early to the way that things play out, maybe in a way that we didn't want or or didn't expect, well, that we can design something that is resilient. Who how how do how did anybody like want this to play out out of the box, right? They just wanted it to exist, right? And the fact that it exists means that anybody can use it. Yeah. So I think that um, certainly I don't think this is Satoshi Nakamoto's idea, but that there's a popular idea in the Bitcoin community that it's going to lead to the collapse of governments and those governments will stop printing money because Bitcoin exists or they will at least have to cater to the whims 
of Bitcoiners because that form of value will be superior and that Bitcoin will continue to be regulated somewhat similarly to what it is today, meaning that it's lawful to own and transact personally. Um, but we've already seen, for example, in Iran, when it became more popular, the government was like, oh, then you can't do local commerce in it. And sure, you can take that risk by doing it yourself. But there's a lot of reasons that people don't do things that are easy to do, but technically unlawful because they don't want to get caught. So the governments around the world certainly certainly can react to Bitcoin by making it more difficult and risky for people to use it. I think being aware of how governments and other kinds of bodies that make decisions view Bitcoin can help us prevent those kinds of laws by showing that really the thing we need to fear is not terrorism at all. Uh, there are probably things that we need to fear with Bitcoin, but I'm just not thinking terrorism is one of them. Yeah, I was looking at your... Uh your Twitter account, you had a tweet about that, a, a joke about terrorist are <laughs> wearing pants. Wearing pants, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's so, true though. It's like when I was terrorists in the drink East, water. Should we should we start banning water? Yeah. So I mean, starting when I was nineteen was the first time I started studying terror networks, and I specialized in it for several years. So, and I remember Bitcoin from that. I mean, when I back in 2015, when I was looking into ISIS in particular and the way that they use digital media and the way that they recruit and the way that they plan attacks and the way that they network and things. And Bitcoin was not very useful for them because they were just in areas where it was very hard for them to liquidate. And still today, I would say that there are some terror groups that use Bitcoin, but so, so, so much less than they use a million other things like Telegram, for example. Or the US dollar. Or, of course, the U.S. dollar. Osama bin Laden was wearing, a, what was it, like a, a watch, like a Rolodex watch or something when he, when he died? Like, even people who want to bring the collapse of the American government are happy to accept our dollars. Yeah. Now that and uh, Mexican drug lords had teller windows at HSBC form-fitted for their suitcases full of U.S. dollars that they were laundering. And so that, yeah, and that, and that gets back to the point where, like, so I think... We're talking a lot about, that's what I think personally, uh, people's fear of governments shutting this down is overblown because I think governments are doing a very good job at making themselves look terrible uh, over time, uh, especially, and uh, it's obviously uh, different for people under different governments around the world, but let's we'll just make fun of our own government here in the U.S. Like I think the U.S. and the central banking system here is leading itself to a path where people are going to demand another option. And if we truly live in a free country, it's going to, it's not going to be, it's not going to be like a, the Bitcoin starving the government. It's going to be people losing faith in the government's ability to govern and Bitcoin that losing faith in the government's ability to govern number one. And then number two, the federal reserve and the government uh, in concert with each other, being able to uh, control the economy and the monetary system, which is becoming more and more apparent. Actually, what I wrote about in the newsletter this morning is we are headed towards a insane demographic shift here in the States. Yeah. Um, and the monetary policy that's been uh, applied over the last five decades is untenable. Um, so the, the lengths that the Federal Reserve and the government are going to have to go to to just keep everything in stasis, let alone uh, 
uh, explosive growth is going to fuck up the money. Um, and that's uh, what I think it's just going to be a market decision that people are like, all right, Bitcoin and alternatives like it, like gold are, are better than what we have now. I would agree that our current economy is in dire straits. I would agree that people are losing faith in governance. I've never seen a dog backed into a corner that didn't bite. So I'm not exactly sure that that's a situation in which the Fed will play nice with alternative forms of currency. However, that all being said, I want to really emphasize one of the big things I think that we get wrong when we think about Bitcoin is that we have seen uh, functional, uh, moderately functional nation states or empires before that had multiple forms of currency, including ones that were not controlled by the state, and everything got along regular. I mean, it did not lead to some kind of collapse or, or social reformation. Throughout history, there were people that used gold. There were people that used silver. There were people that used textiles, like silk. There are all different kinds of commodities that have shifted between a currency as in a medium of exchange or a store of value and something that you would use for its practicality, grain even. Uh, and it happened when there were kings who were also stamping their faces and issuing currencies. And that didn't seem to upset the national order. They found other ways to quell the populace. And people would just behind closed doors be trading in these commodities. Yeah. No, I mean, that was Rome, right? Give them, give them grain. Yeah. Towards the end of the, the Roman Empire. And that's something that definitely I think we can be inspired by. We can believe that we don't need to hope for disaster in order for Bitcoin to succeed. Uh, what Bitcoin does need to succeed is a robust and diverse network of people that will continue contributing to it and valuing it. Yeah, see, that's see, that's as it were. I think uh, a lot of people have misconceptions about Bitcoiners, and again, uh, this is something uh, Pierre Richard and Michael Goldstein like to say a lot. Like Bitcoin is descriptive; it's not. We're not prescribing that Bitcoin. Uh, is the antidote to the problems of the world. We're describing that the world is in such a bad place uh, that naturally the market uh, is going to seek an alternative, and Bitcoin is likely to be uh, one of the alternatives that is chosen, right? It totally could be. So you're describing that the world is the way it is, and if you project forward, uh, it's staying on this path. Like It's just going to be inevitable that people seek alternatives. It's not that we're prescribing that the world needs to go to shit for Bitcoin to succeed. It's just, hey, the world is going to shit. What are people going to do once it hits a certain tipping point? So as you pointed out, though, there's no one Bitcoiner, right? Unlike Ethereum, where we have a certain set of leadership, in Bitcoin, there are lots of contributors, people who are very, very influential. But outside of that, there are also other people who have their own narratives and are certainly Bitcoiners and are promoting a Bitcoin narrative. And there are definitely people who think... Uh, they, they, they imagine themselves as anarchists. Uh, so you think Ethereum has a concise narrative? I think Ethereum... More concise than Bitcoin? Mm, that's a good question. I think Ethereum has... Is it a world computer? Is it an unstoppable virtual machine? Is it Turing complete? Is it uh, environmentally friendly? For sure. <laughs> but it has a group of people that define the narrative. While Bit- who, who are those people? I don't think we even need to, to ask the question of who are the people that define the Ethereum no, no, narrative. Yeah, who, are, who are they? Is it the, 
is it the DeFi plumpers of the world? Is it Vitalik and Joe Lubin? Um, I, I would say, I don't know. Th- let's, let's talk about how Ethereum has succeeded where Bitcoin is failing so far. Okay. Every single banker in the World Economic Forum is curious about Ethereum. They scoff and want you to go away the minute you say the word Bitcoin. And you might argue, well, that's because Bitcoin is here to steal the power of the bankers. They're not afraid of Bitcoin, okay? What they do want is a way to streamline the work that they already do. And although Ethereum may not be a solution for that, they believe that there could be potential in the technology. And that is not a kind of curiosity Bitcoin has been able to, um, to inspire. On the other hand, Ethereum, the Ethereum founders and leaders have been able to change the way uh, digital assets are regulated. Bitcoiners have been struggling to get very basic tax reforms so that people can actually spend and use their Bitcoin, and that's going to be locked up in Congress for forever. I mean, I guess two things there. It depends on how you define success and what your goals are. And yeah, Bitcoiners run away from regulation. Like then they do, as if uh, they're going to be able to avoid the fact that it will continue to exist. So I'm not a big believer in the nation state as a concept. We've seen empires, and we've seen different kinds of tribal leaderships. Like I'm not saying that the nation state will always exist, and so we have to mold ourselves to it. I am saying that if you want to have... If you want to change the world, and you were saying Bitcoiners also want to change the world, it is probably easier to do that. I'm not even saying it's the right approach. I'm just saying it's an effective approach, uh, top down as opposed to bottom up. Bottom up feels better. Bottom up might have more ethical results. I, I really can't say. I've never successfully overthrown a dictatorship. But I can say that I see, I see people with power to make decisions Decisions about who gets to go to jail and who gets to stay free. Decisions about how people can access their assets. And you can't really buy Bitcoin if you can't get your fiat or you can't get your value, right? Like, so people who make decisions about banks and transactions, you could. And that is my favorite way to earn Bitcoin. This is true. This is very true. But I would very much like it if the people who are in charge of making sure who goes to jail and who stays free didn't see Bitcoin as a sign of criminal activity. And Ethereum has done a much better job of that than the Bitcoin community has. It's always such a relief to go to Bitcoin. It's so uh, bullish for Bitcoin in my mind. Yeah. So like every time I go to a meeting of Bitcoin core developers, it's such a relief. It's so unusual for me because everyone is talking very pragmatically about a software. And that's what they're doing. They are making a software. There is no um, crazy lights display. There's no one telling me that there's like a queen from some African tribe that's here to tell me how she's been empowered by some token. Like they're just dudes building a software and they can very pragmatically discuss what are the downsides and what are the possibilities. But that's not the broader discussion of what people see when they look at Bitcoin. So we have this issue in which we have a technology that is very useful and has so much potential, but only the people that spend a ton of time can see that. Well, we have another technology that I'm not going to debate the technical merits of Ethereum, but is not presented or discussed or dealt with in the same way. When I go to meetings with core developers from the Ethereum community, even if they're talking about software, the approach is extremely different. Um, It's a little less academic. It's a little more... um, 
pragmatic? No, no, no. For the Ethereum community, it's it's more esoteric. It's like we could be doing this or we could be doing that or theoretically this thing could happen. And while in Bitcoin, we're talking about like, here is a thing that is happening. We could make it like this to be faster, but that would mean this trade-off. Like very, very clear. Um, So we have a, a much more esoteric development process, but the messaging is so clear to so many people and a lot of people can't tell the difference between these two things that are being built. Messaging's clear where? I think uh, the Ethereum messaging, while it shifts, is much more oriented towards um, human rights. Bitcoiners also care very deeply about human rights, but a lot of times that concern gets drowned out in a lot of the frustration that they're expressing with the current system that they live in. And so it takes you a while before you hear that message about this potential for the technology to be used for human rights. Does that make sense? Like no one in the WEF was like even, had even been familiar with that concept. I think think Ethereum uses human rights as a virtue signal. I went to a consensus meetup a few years ago um, where people were talking about spinning up tokens to help women in Africa, which... Hey, I would love to help women in Africa, but it's, it's again, it's no it, doubt in my mind that there are certainly strong virtue signaling that happens across the space and it drives me insane. Yeah. <laughs> no. And then going back to your point about top down versus bottom up, like I would completely disagree with that. Like I, uh, I think, um, we need to pull the Buckminster Fuller quote out. Like you, I didn't say that was the right way to do it. I didn't say that it's a, that's a going to have a result that we want to have. I'm just saying that these are two communities that are clearly taking a very different approach. And yeah, and I guess, like, how do you define success? What are the goals? Like, are the goals to get all the banks to adopt your cryptocurrency? So in the short term, the goal is to stay out of jail. And <laughs> Ethereum people have done that. Not Virgil. Ouch. <laughs> I, will, I will say in Virgil's defense that he is somebody who is widely admired within the community he worked in. He was always um, seen as a father figure, seen as someone who is helpful to people. I don't really want to discuss his, his trial, but I will say as his character that Virgil was very beloved and he was beloved because of the way that he was seen as a leader. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know too much about him. Can't you say this? I mean, what Bitcoiners are going to jail or trying to go to jail? Charlie Shrem. Charlie Shrem. Yeah, Shrem. Yeah. So I mean, he, we, we, could, we could list off the top of our head several people who have gone to jail for using Bitcoin. And I'm not saying that they're right or wrong. I'm saying that like I would prefer that we be much more, um, that, that we not be viewed the way that we are viewed uh, amongst the people that have the power to make decisions. I don't think that we need to lick boots. I do think that we can emphasize the way that technology can be used for things other than terrorism and drugs because everyone seems to know that narrative and I'm so tired of it. There are actually a thousand other ways that people use Bitcoin in a thousand different situations that I think people would be very sympathetic to and curious about and even want to uh, promote or to learn from if only people were discussing those aspects of Bitcoin. Let's jump in on. Cool. So, um, but you know, so we talk a lot about empowering people in emerging markets, right? And it is very true that as a hedge against inflation in all different kinds of countries, I hear from people all all the time that they are holding their asset, their their wealth in Bitcoin to be able to transact internationally, to do business internationally, and to be able to store their wealth for their offspring. Great use case. 
But thinking about here in the US, where the vast majority of people aren't as concerned about banking issues, but they might be concerned with their freedom in other ways. Like, for example, gosh, I don't remember. It was like 90% of women who are domestic abuse uh, victims are also victims of something called financial abuse. Mm -hmm. That's when somebody controls your access to bank accounts, to jobs, to money, and that's why women don't leave. Um, I've actually heard of women who, um, in a domestic abuse shelter, shared Bitcoin with each other, were able to get lawyers, were able to get jobs because they took like a class to then get better employment, able to earn their own freedom in the ways that like Cardi B, who was like famously <laughs> saying, yeah, so Cardi B got out of an abusive relationship because she was stripping and would save cash and hide it. Oh, that was oh I thought you were going to go into her, uh, her, her rant on the taxes. I did not know this. <laughs> I did not know this story. Yeah, no, but I mean, uh, she definitely does have a good rant on taxes. But that, that's, her, that's her story. That's how she became a star. That's how she um, became independent. She was actually a domestic abuse victim. Shit. So Bitcoin can do that, and it's easier to hide than a bunch of cash. Right? Yeah. That's what I, I wrote a piece for Dig yesterday. Bitcoin is better for moving money across borders, even if it's out your, even out the door of your house, right? Yeah. And... So there are a lot of countries, especially, for example, in Africa, where normal e-commerce platforms won't serve them because there's like a high amount of fraud, uh, credit card fraud from those countries. So even if you're a perfectly upstanding citizen who just wants to buy yourself a speaker for your guitar, you a lot of commerce companies won't work with a credit card from your country, but they'll accept your Bitcoin. Like you can get something shipped there. You just can't use a, a local credit card. So there's all different kinds of ways that people are gaining access to financial power, to markets to different kinds of opportunities. People that are freelancing around the world who locally don't have good employment opportunities, but they're smart and they can figure stuff out and they can work online and accept payments. I mean, there's just like all different kinds of ways that I think people would be really excited about uh, that have really less to do with number go up and screw the bankers and more to do with like the ability to make your own financial choices regardless of the physical context you're living in. Yeah. So you think we need to shift the narrative? I think number go up is important, so particularly. I think number, number go up in, uh, enables everything else. So that's like a, it's true, but it's frustrating because on one hand, number goes up is what gets people excited and keeps people devoted. On the other hand, number goes up is why every single person I ask in the World Economic Forum, what is Bitcoin? Tell me it's for speculation. There's nothing else it can be used for. But that speculation leads to liquidity, which leads to making it easier for people to move that money. Uh, it led to this really annoying narrative that what we need to do is invent a cryptocurrency that is quote unquote stable. Uh, nothing's ever stable. Don't fall exactly. for the stable coins. There, there is no concept of stability. Currencies by definition are defined by the value of what people are, are willing to value them as. Do you value the US government and think that is stable? Do you value this other thing and think that is stable? That is where the stability comes from. It's not from some mechanism built into the computer. So I, I do think the volatility, the, the number go up is... First off, inevitable. It's not something that I, either you nor me can roll back. And number, number two is in some ways productive. But I also think that if that's all we focus on, it can be extremely counterproductive. And that's what people think the use case is. The use case is number go up. And the use case is not number go up. Like if, if what you're looking for is a wildly risky investment, there are other investment options. Um, I, Bitcoin is about self-ownership. Yeah, self-sovereignty in the 
liberty in the digital age. That's, what <laughs> I would say a lot, right? that's the idea. That's the hope. Right. That, and that's what I like to harp on. I don't talk about number go up too much in the newsletter or on the podcast. You don't. And that's really good. Yeah. Um, and that's, but that's the thing, like how, uh, and that's a big gripe of mine on this podcast is a lot of people want all this stuff out of the box and it's just untenable. It's going to take time. It's going to take, of course it's going to take time. changing of minds. Like we are like at the very, very early days of this stuff. And, uh, I do believe that we were born. You're a millennial too, right? Yeah, I'm millennial. I'm not. I'm not going to dox your age. I'm a '90s child, <laughs> um, and I actually don't know your age. I'm a '90s child, um, and I believe any like particularly around the time I was born, we were just born at like one of the weirdest times in history to ever be born because things are changing at such a pace, and nobody can keep up. Nobody knows what's going on. And as much as, uh, and that's why I think Bitcoin's inevitable and from a, from a market choice perspective is because things are going to keep changing drastically. And I think they're going to affect nation states and governments. Bitcoin is definitely already affecting nation states and governments. Yeah. Bitcoin is a part of global politics. It's not even Bitcoin, like Twitter, social media. Like yes. The internet. Yes. Um, yes, these things too. And Bitcoin's just another layer of that stuff. Um, that That's it, a scary part, that, right? That uh, that sort of adds another 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 arrow in the quiver of our tools against these uh, state governments. It's another layer in terms of how we communicate and interact with other humans. Um, that's for sure. But I don't think we even remotely understand how it is that digital media, I'm including Bitcoin in that, but also things like Twitter, have impacted the way we view ourselves, the things we want, and the things that we do, even offline. Yeah. It's a lot easier to manipulate people these days. Something I used to do when I was uh, working in the Middle but East. It's, but it's also a lot easier to get very good information. It's just how it's, 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 uh, it's developing the... Uh, the way developing a way to think critically and how to filter this information, right? It's just a onslaught of more information than we've ever been, uh, ever been fed. That's no, no, this is very true. It's easier to, it's cheaper to get good information. The problem is it requires media literacy in order to know what is the good information because now you just, there's so much of it that if you don't come to it already knowing how to think critically, it'll be very easy to lean into something that speaks to your own biases and fears. Yeah, no, I mean, hand up. I fell into it to coronavirus. Like I had like, a, <laughs> I had a bunch of reflection like the last two days particularly. I'm like, fuck man, they got me. Yeah, yeah. They got me. You're more likely to die from the flu, the regular flu. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's uh, I've decided not to comment anymore on it other than the conversation right now because I'm confused. I don't know what to believe. Like, is that true? Or are like the, uh, is the ratio of infections to deaths, what we should be looking at, which some people are saying. And then I talk, I've talked with people who live in China and around China and uh, I've been in China the last couple of months and they're like, yeah, it's probably just the Chinese government and local governments overreacting. Um, and it's just weird. I don't know. I don't know. I think that's the really important thing that we need to remind ourselves constantly. It's okay to not know. And it's very important to admit to yourself when you don't know. Like, I have zero idea how it would be that a nation state would attack the mining infrastructure of Bitcoin. I don't. 
what I do know is that there are definitely people that would be interested in, in knowing that, people that have a lot of resources and probably could figure it out much faster than me. So does it, do I think it's impossible? No. Do I know how it is they would do it? Also no. Does it necessarily, is it inevitable? Also no, it is not. But for sure, we've been saying for a while that uh, governments are just now starting to take an interest in Bitcoin. And this is just objectively not true. Several years ago, when I was focusing on the terror beat and ISIS was trying to raise funds with Bitcoin, governments were very, very aware of it. And they were already trying to allocate resources to figure out how it is they would combat or, or contradict um, Bitcoin usage that they did wanted to discourage. So that was like 2015-ish. If I'm sure if by then a lowly journalist <laughs> with, with no security clearance could figure out the governments were thinking about that, then by now, five years later, what we're seeing is, oh, governments are taking more of an interest in Bitcoin is actually just a tip of the iceberg when it comes to what is possible. Uh, it can be anything from exchanges to mining to wallets. Like we think our wallets are safe and they're a starting point but certainly not a finished endpoint that could resist a nation state attack. Um, I'm not saying that any of this negates Bitcoin. All I'm saying is that like we, Bitcoin exists in a broader context and the more attractive your honeypot is, right? The more challenging adversaries it will attract and as Bitcoin becomes more and more attractive, we definitely need to be thinking about like, okay, who are the people that are interested in this? What do they want? And does that contradict with my use case, which is self-sovereignty? Um, how do I protect the self-sovereignty use case for myself? Because that is something that will con continue to be under attack as more and more people are interested in it. Yeah, right. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin's conservative uh, development nature and then tribalistic uh, uh I don't want to tribalistic users, right? Uh, the the development is conservative because it wants to ensure that uh, people can remain sovereign, that they can download the software and run it on their own personal devices. If that's ever bastardized, then Bitcoin value prop gets thrown out the window, and then uh, you see that protected by loud people uh, on the internet and even in person sometimes. Yeah, I mean, the tribal nature of humanity is so fascinating. And I think one of the things that is the most interesting part of the Bitcoin experiment is can we cooperate at scale without being forced? That's the beauty of Bitcoin, right? Social scalability, the less, that's why I think Ethereum's doomed to fail, right? They've created such a social attack vector. I think it depends on what your goal is, right? Like, I'm not sure that Ethereum will fail if what their goal is to change the world and they've already had significant impact on world leaders. Their impact may not be what they expected it to be. Is that who you want to have an impact on? I don't want anything. Lee just wants to be able to hold her own asset and learn cool things about computers. But what is success if governments are adopting yeah. Ethereum um, because they think they can control it? That's, that's like... I don't think they're doing it because they think they can control it. I think they think they can make a customized version that does what they want it to do, and that Ethereum is not necessarily so they can control a threat it. Threat to their um, yeah, their sovereignty. That. Yeah, they're not a threat. They're not really a threat to their sovereignty. Yeah, yeah that's but, why they okay. like it. So, but Bitcoin has so much, so much of a harder goal to achieve to be money. Yeah, Bitcoin already is money. It is money right now. It is but, money, but 
No. Okay. I, I, I disagree. Respectfully disagree. Um, I think Bitcoin has a better shot of success because it only wants to be money, um, unstoppable, peer-to-peer distributed cash. Uh, Ethereum wants to be money, a world computer, uh, the uh, plumbing for the fi- uh, for any app you want to build in the future. Ethereum, like that's a lot harder than just focusing on producing blocks every 10 minutes that enable peer-to-peer distributed transactions. Okay, okay, okay. So first off, I'm sorry that I uh, have been so harping on Ethereum, but Ethereum doesn't want to be money in the world computer and all these things. Ethereum wants to change the world by creating a more open financial system than exists today. Whether or not it can accomplish that goal is still yet to be seen. They've certainly made inroads in terms of impacting how laws are implemented. Bitcoin wants to be sustainable money. It wants to be not only money today, which it is, it is money, but it wants to be money 30 years from now. Thousands of years from now. Thousands of years from now. Do you understand how... We're going to be taking Bitcoin (laughs) to space. Bitcoin is intergalactic money if you wanted to have money... That is such a lofty goal. Yeah. What? Why why live if you don't have lofty goals, oh, right? I'm definitely into the lofty goals, and I think that they are admirable. What I'm saying is that that is an incredible challenge because money... You're saying <laughs> it's, how is changing the world not an incredible challenge? It's a totally... It's a very incredible challenge. It is, and I am not saying whether or not Ethereum will actually succeed in that, just that they've made significant process. Um, Bitcoin has also made progress. It is money today. And its development, I'm just like not even worried about it. There are people that want to argue about the technicalities of Bitcoin. I think that it's something that we can take comfort from is we've seen the development process work in such a way that conservative choices are made with the user's best interest in mind consistently. And I just no longer worry about the technical challenges of Bitcoin. I worry very much about the social challenges of Bitcoin because that is something that not Ethereum, not Russia, that no one has figured out yet. What do you mean? Like doesn't so if you're not worried about the technical and it just works, that makes it socially scalable, right? Anybody can use it. I think, and a big enough group over a long enough period of time, most social systems create a kind of hierarchy that functions in a way that isn't how the system was originally designed to function. Corruption, right? How would Bitcoin become corrupted? I don't know. That's what I think a lot about. (laughs) How can So Bitcoin uh-huh. has a goal. Just wants upgrades, want to be backwards compatible. Hopefully it gets to a point it'll never ossify completely. Again, the simpli- beauty and the simplicity. And that's what makes simplicity it... Simplicity so- is good. That's what makes it socially scalable. Like, I don't see how you, know, you could see Bitcoin uh, have troubles scaling socially, but Ethereum won't. Like, I'd- so there were definitely times in which, for example, the silver market uh, had manipulation in it, but silver as a concept is solid as a, as a precious metal. Yeah. It was globally distributed. There, and that doesn't mean that silver failed in the long run, you know, because the silver market eventually recovered from that. But I'm saying that Bitcoin o- offers us the... Yeah, yeah. How were these markets manipulated? So you're like, you're, like gold price fixing, that, that was a scandal that happened <laughs> shit, eight years ago at this yeah. point where um, that's when I was still working. Uh, in finance when that was going on. But that that manipulation was caused because you just had people in Gchat deciding what the price of gold was that day. Exactly. Um, you think that could happen with Bitcoin? Not today. You think, how would that happen in the future though? I've just learned not to underestimate when an entity with billions of dollars and millions of people to deploy decides to do a thing. 
You don't even need that. I mean, you can have tiny nation states like Israel or Switzerland that have a huge impact on the global economy that's vastly disproportionate to the amount of resources they had to deploy. Mm -hmm. So if you have an organized structure with resources to deploy and a desire to do a thing, that thing should be strongly guarded against. Yeah, and they could, I mean, they could wage these attacks against any cryptocurrency. They could, and I really don't mind, like I don't, I'm not worried about Bitcoin, I guess, in the terms of its concept of existence. I'm not worried about Bitcoin in terms of um, if it would, could recover from such an attack. It probably could, maybe, if enough people were devoted to uh, helping it recover. I'm worried about, I want, I want to be able to use Bitcoin. And so when I have to think about to myself, like, what are the ways in which the value that I personally get from it could come under threat? And how are the ways that I could prepare myself for different situations and still have my Bitcoin be usable? Because like we've saw, for example, in Lebanon, you need to think about Bitcoin before the limited access hits. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what you're stuck with is a really cool USB card. Like... In order to turn your Bitcoin into food and shelter or a plane ticket, you need to think ahead in terms of what are the resources I have accessible to me? What is the use case I see for this? And what are the ways in which that could be thwarted? I need to build protections against that, just like you would for anything, just like you have insurance on your house, you know? Yeah, that's uh, Eric Boskul's favorite saying, Bitcoin only succeeds if it is black market money. And I could see that easily happening, especially with the open source software is being deployed to enable, uh, most importantly, the the uh, receiving of Bitcoin, right? So something like BTC Pay Server can imagine a future uh, in which bodegas, even though if Bitcoin may be illegal, mm-hmm. uh, those people that own the bodegas may want to own Bitcoin, may be a risk to take it, like selling Lucy's is. Uh, as well and if they trust that uh, if they find customers that are willing to pay in bitcoin and they trust them um they pull out a little qr code that's hidden under behind the ca- uh, cash register present it paid in bitcoin yeah technically this is not a problem technically this is very easy to foresee and the, the question is will there be customers that are willing to pay in bitcoin and will there be ways, like, do, will that asset be liquid in that context? And I think there's a very high probability it could be. But just thinking about liquidity, liquidity meaning how do I turn this tiny amount of data into value, um, value for the tangible things I need to survive, that's the question. And that, that requires, that, that's a social issue. That, that's, a, that's a problem of getting enough people to value the thing in order for it to have liquidity even beyond a small circle of cool tribes. Yeah, I think we're getting there. I think it's possible. I think it's going to happen. I'm, again, I'm very bullish. I think it's inevitable. I think, uh, uh, again, the world has a choice, right? And when you just extrapolate into the future what individuals will choose. Yeah, no, there's the, no way to know. The digital panopticon or the free liberty <laughs> enhancing money. I think, I mean, when push comes to shove, I do think there will be a time of civil disobedience and, uh, I don't want to say riots, but the revolution of the mind. I very much hope that there are more widespread freedoms. And there's, for example, today we have, I believe, more widespread freedom of expression than we had 30 years ago. And that's largely in due to, to digital media. Most definitely. 
So it is possible to imagine that there would be a period of greater freedoms that is in part enabled by Bitcoin. But there's a lot of other factors at play in terms of whether we see that kind of future or whether we see a more, it doesn't have to even be dystopian. It can just be mundane. You know, the, the USSR, for example, had all kinds of computer-oriented economic experiments that in some ways sound very similar to blockchain projects uh, going on in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. 30 years and it still died and it's considered a failure. Something can exist for more than five years and doesn't make it a bubble and still fail. Yeah. That's the other interesting thing, too. How do we know we're not already in the dystopia and will uh, living in a dystopia only be recognized in retrospect? I think in a lot of ways it, it will be, actually. So if you talk to people that are Holocaust survivors, for example, and you ask them, why did you stay? Why did you get in line? Why did you get on the train? A lot of them will be like, we didn't believe our neighbors would do that. We were just living our lives. And every little step you take along the way doesn't feel as if you're going towards doom. It feels as if you're doing the regular thing you've been doing. The context is just slightly scarier or slightly more tense, but you feel that you're prepared. You know, you sewed gold into your sweater, and so you're ready for that. And then you show up in a camp, and the gold in your sweater is not useful. You know, so I think that there is something certainly to be said for the idea that we aren't good at recognizing crisis when we're in it i think we're in it <laughs> tsa social credit scores are here um yeah, yeah. via credit scores i had somebody uh on the podcast last last weekend and he said uh he went and bought mountain climbing gear for a friend for a birthday gift mm -hmm. using his credit card and, and his life insurance got canceled because they thought he was doing something too risky That's when he was so just funny. buying a gift I think I think we're living in dystopia. I think we have the dystopia around us again. The digital panopticon is, is being fortified right now. It's already built out. It's pretty easy. They just have to flip a switch. And that's why I think Bitcoin is imperative. And that, I guess that's what I'm trying to get to this whole conversation. Like The technology is here. It exists. It works. It does work. It's uh, good. How do we get... I mean... How do we get what? How do we change minds? How do we change how minds? How do we shake people? So going back to the Holocaust survivors um speaking on their experiences like uh, do you know have any did any of them say what they wish they would have done a lot of the ones that are still alive today were very very young children at the time so they don't they didn't really have as much agency uh, to do anything different but i will say so something that it, even from when i was in journalism school i've been studying for a really long time is how people receive information and how how do you change someone's mind mm -hmm. so uh one of my graduate theses when I was in college was a study where I had a bunch of people read the same article and tell me what it was they learned from it. And some people were very knowledgeable about the subject. Some people were not. Not a single person actually told me what was in the article. Generally, they would tell me an opinion that they had, but maybe peppered with a fact or two from the article. But they missed the entire point of the article. Like they, they weren't focusing on the article. They were seeing what they wanted to see. And this is something that we see across media content. Like even books, TV, like when you consume something, what you're looking for is actually to confirm your own biases. You're like grasping for it as quick as you can. And something that really reaffirmed this idea for me when I was working in the Middle East was dealing a lot with both soldiers and people who had been convicted of terrorism. They would often describe their experiences in the exact same words, and they would describe the enemy in the exact same words. So 
they can't both be right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. They can't both be doing the same thing, but the other person is doing a very different thing. Something that I learned, and this is also something that's been proven uh, by psychologists that study conflict in, in general, mm-hmm. is that most people believe they are doing the right thing. And a lot of times you'll find they have this similar goals. You know, the reason that so many world leaders want to track all of these um, transactions and, and these profiles is because they want to keep people safe and they want, do they really? I think they just want to control people. I think that they, they don't give a fuck about us. <laughs> I don't think they give a fuck about us individually. No, they don't give a fuck about us as a whole. They despise us. It's, very rare to meet a psychopath as somebody who's met them. They're pretty rare. <laughs> not, <laughs> not in the government, not in politics. You really? have to be a psychopath to get into it. So like every time um, someone would It's a come, sociopath's game. It's, <laughs> politics are definitely uh, not for the faint of heart and attract like Bitcoin. Not for normal people. Like, like the creation of money, it attracts a lot of characters with nefarious motives. Very true. But I think most people, when you present them with, hey, like I, I would tell one person who helps banks and other financial institutions with uh, software, and she was describing blockchain as something that could be really dangerous uh, to institutions that they might unknowingly be working with North Korea or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gave her the example of what if I'm someone in Saudi Arabia or Iran and I need to get an abortion? And that's, do you believe it's my right? And she goes, of course I do. And I was like, so how will I pay for that? And she was like, I understand your point that we need to be able to make choices without um, the big brother's approval. And that those choices can sometimes be relevant to human rights and not only to um, terrorists or, or other kinds of illegal activities. When you bring up specific use cases, people are extremely receptive and they think about like, okay, she was like, how would I make a regulatory framework that would allow my institutions to feel safe working with this crypto without the risk that she's concerned about? So I think most people, like the way you change hearts and minds is by thinking that they're not against you, trying to figure out what is it you want? Like if, if what you want is to stop terrorism, like that's a goal that I think a lot of people can get on the same board with. Like let's figure out where we have something in common as opposed to trying to only focus on where we think, see things very differently, which she sees things as primarily surveillance can, is a tool for good, and I see it not that same way. But if that was all we focused on, we never would have gotten to a point of, oh, well, how can I get my clients to fill out the paperwork they need to fill out without negating a specific use case, if that makes sense. No, I agree. Uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Um, and, yeah, it's surveillance... I think it's uh, <laughs> I think it's definitely uh, nefarious, right? Especially, I'm speaking again, for our own country, for America. Since the Patriot Act, the Patriot Act was signed, and they said they were only going to use the metadata to track terrorists. And today, fast forward 19 years, they're using the metadata on social media to flag people who own guns so they can go confiscate their guns. Like, that is beginning to happen. And so... You, you open up the door to the surveillance state a little bit, and they punch it open and start using it against their populace, which is happening. It's happening. So that's the other thing. Humans are strange creatures. Um, on one hand, they have a tendency to justify whatever it is they're doing. They have a tendency to see what they want to see. They also have a tendency to, when they don't have a check and balance, to overuse power. And that's just something that's consistent. It, it doesn't make them 
evil necessarily. Most people, when they are given a situation in which they will not have consequences, take more leniency than they should. Yeah, and this gets back to politicians being evil. Like I think that that when the Patriot Act was a way to push forward their nefarious intentions. Patriot Act was not great, in my personal opinion. But do you like going through the scanner? <laughs> do not. <laughs> no, I definitely do not enjoy. Do you think the scanner helps? No, I don't think the scanner helps. But it's good conditioning, though. So when it comes to trying to change someone's mind, um, so far the studies that we have shows that the best way to change someone's mind is to ins- find the things that you agree on and show them how the places where you disagree are complicated. I, I like that strategy a lot. So surveillance in some senses has some benefits. I think that those benefits are outweighed by the negatives, but trying to figure out like what are those benefits and could we give those benefits another way? Like are there other ways to detect attacks before they happen or to um, find people that are trying to harm others? Like I think the most important way that we can help um, improve the image of people who want to protect privacy is by trying to think about goals that are not necessarily evil that other people have because they want to sleep at night too they're not going home thinking to themselves like i'm taking over the world pinky (laughs) i I really like that you said that too so that's right so it it comes to a how do you solve these problems like do you solve terrorism with surveillance or do you try to figure out why people are committing terrorism yeah going to the root of the problem right and i think the root of the problem is money and the control of money and uh, the ability to print money to pay militaries to go bomb foreign lands for their oil is not good that might be the root of the problem right there and uh, yeah yeah would you agree with that at all Yeah, I would definitely agree that the concept of money, which includes private property, is a root of many, many conflicts. So I used to be really obsessed with archaeology, like ancient archaeology, like like early man. We were just figuring out how to speak and make fire, things like that. And uh, most historians and archaeologists today believe that the big distinctions that we have now of um, gendered work, you know, we're like probably... Uh, you take out the trash and your wife does dishes or something where we believe that certain kinds of work are associated with certain kinds of social roles came when we started having property, when we started farming instead of hunting and gathering. And that doesn't mean that having property is wrong. There were still roles during hunting and gathering. There are still roles. There are still groups of people that hunt hunt and gather. Um, No, no, no. It wasn't humans or homos whatever we were, mm. Neanderthals were hunter-gatherers. I mean, mm. there's still roles there, like the men yeah. who caught the mammoths and the women. There were still social roles, but they weren't treated differently in terms of value. Like, we didn't have the same, con- at least as far as we can tell, there's not a lot of written records from those days. Mm-hmm. We don't seem to have records of uh, women being considered property, the way they were considered property, like, for example, the, middle e- the uh, medieval ages. Mm-hmm. Middle ages whatever those ages were. Um, Medieval times. Medieval times, thank you. (laughs) Um, And it's not only related to women. It could be uh, someone with a disability or it could be elderly versus youth. There wasn't the same distinction of like, like a child is my property until they are adult or there wasn't the same distinction in terms of uh, this role is better than that role. It was more, as, as far as we can tell, based on capability. Like if you were a really fierce hunter and you were just 14, people would be happy to have you 
with their troop, regardless of whether or not you're seen as a child. Mm -hmm. We do see um, stark evidence of a distinction, like you were born this way, so you have this value and should behave this way. When we start settling down and having a church that doesn't, or the temple at the time, designate like, we own this, you get this based on that. And when you have a central power that is controlling the distribution of wealth, then we start to see this um, disparity between how it's distributed, basically. So I guess the the short answer to your question is money is certainly at the root of many of the evils we see, but it's not necessarily fiat. It's like the idea of someone else defining what you can own and... That is the definition of fiat. Decree. Defining what you can own, decreeing what you can own. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Like, my favorite example is the Reformation era, like when the church held the held was, was decreeing who and who could not get into heaven and yes yes they were basically sucking value out of the populace by making them pay alms to get into heaven but yeah but the issue is that like since the sumerian times like before the pharaohs okay we've had this concept of fiat and private money it was maybe a little different uh like the persian empire was one of the first people to have like a registry of silver and how it was that it was distributed and valued But the concept of, at the time it was like temples and priests, um, a central body deciding the value of certain things, and that time it would usually be grain. Um, That's the thing that we've had for so long that I think a desire to reverse that is at best wildly ambitious. But we can maybe identify some of the ways that that has harmed us and try and problem solve for those because we're just like not going to convince 8 billion people to give up centralized control of wealth, right? I don't think we're going to convince people to do it. I think they're going to just naturally come to the conclusion that it's uh, not advantageous to have people centrally controlling this stuff. I think while the Ethereum community has a goal of changing the world, that as Bitcoiners, Bitcoin succeeds if it's still useful 20 years from now, 30 years from now. Bitcoin succeeded already in my mind. Bitcoin it's, is it's, it's already, whether Bitcoin yeah. is succeeding, it's whether or not it fails right, going forward. And That's fair. I'll get behind that. Bitcoin has succeeded by becoming money. The question of whether it continues to be money and can be used by individuals who do not have the powers of a nation state um, in the future, like that is all it needs. It doesn't need to, you know, hyper Bitcoinization and everything is in Bitcoin and everyone uses Bitcoin for everything. Like if, if one person, if a few people can use Bitcoin when they need to use it, that's a cool thing. Yeah, it's got to be black mar- market money first and foremost. But going back to like the centrally controlled fiat currencies like why had they always taken over right and i think it's because a technology like bitcoin hasn't existed and like gold had a good run there for quite a while but uh, we found out during the 1930s that centralizing gold in vaults sort of mm-hmm. bastardizes the whole the whole system um and since then we've had we've lived in this this fiat decreed world of this is the money and there really hasn't been quality monetary competition uh outside of uh government and central bank currencies and until bitcoin right like so Mm -hmm. bitcoin in my mind provides that opportunity to to break that cycle right in a in a material and 
in a material way. I think Bitcoin provides the opportunity in a digital world to return to the norms of the pre-modern world in which grain or rice or silk or gold or silver or the silver stamped with your leader's face on it could all be used depending on your context. Bitcoin is like reintroducing the fact that there can be wealth that is not defined by a nation state, even if nation states continue to manage the economy through fiat. Yeah. Both can exist. Definitely. And I actually think I'm partial towards how Finney and like Bitcoin banking in the future, we'll go back to like, actually, I don't know if House said this particularly. This is what I believe. I believe we will see like you know, a free banking system like Canada had in the 18th century where uh, banks have reserves of Bitcoin and then they're able to issue um, their own, cur- not currency, their own, yeah, their own currencies to their constituents or customers, not constituents, their private banks could be a government bank um doing that uh ideally you do hold the the reserve currency uh on uh, yourself at the end of the day but i do think it is inevitable that it will be used as reserves in a in a quasi free banking system it could be so um i was recently reading some studies about linux adoption in different communities around the world (coughs) bless you And across the different studies, um, one of the things that was very consistent is that you needed to have local champions who were able to explain and represent the technology as something advantageous, as opposed to it being like a downgrade from like the paid uh, software options. And basically also to help people adapt localized solutions that they would need because the different use case had different needs, right? Yeah, but also Linux went out in the long run. Excuse me, I'm burping now. Because um, it was a better technology. Microsoft... That's re- just not true. Yes, things it don't is. win because they are better technologies. Yeah. Things win because more people no, use them. Linux won because it's a better technology. Uh, like, Microsoft bent the knee. Their biggest competitor is now sending their hardware out with Linux in it. L- Linux might be great, and Microsoft may have bent the knee. But if we think about the fact... If, if your view of the government is true and it's just a complete shit show, then we can't also believe that things succeed because they are better. That's a good point. Like, things succeed because more people subscribe to them. I think technologies, uh, to be more specific, technologies will succeed in the long run. Eh, No, because beta, beta, uh, what was it? uh, What's the VHS competitor that was supposedly better? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. I don't even remember. But see, that's exactly the point. Yeah. Like, Blu-ray didn't catch on. It was better. Like, so many things don't catch on that they're better. It's just about, like, external circumstances. Blu-ray got torpedoed by streaming. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, which is better than Blu-ray. Yeah, it's interesting. Are we going to solve all the world's problems today, Lee? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've done nothing but rants about things that make me anxious. (laughs) Um, Why Why do these things make you anxious? Um, they're so they're fun to talk about. They're There's very a, very big fun problems to talk are about. fun to talk. You get anxious. Are you like are you worried that the, the trajectory of humanity or? I think anybody that publicly puts their face talking about Bitcoin puts themselves at risk, and I think I do that a lot. Me too. Yeah, you do too. So I mean, that when when I talk about the anxiety, I feel that people like us are necessary because without us, Bitcoin seems scary and and evil and wrong. 
And when you openly talk about Bitcoin and you show that like, you're not ashamed of it, as a matter of fact, there are all kinds of ways that you use it that believe can be uplifting, that people shift the way that they view Bitcoin. And that's really important. Like for the Linux examples, you need to have local champions that understand local needs. On the other hand, when we talk about the world going down in fire, it, it does make me very anxious to think that um, where, where would I be in that? Right. No, I think about that a lot. That's why I want to get out of New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Go out in the countryside. Yeah. Get yourself oh. some dogs. <sighs> no, it's, it's something I toil with a lot, too, in my mind. Like, I like to have faith that most people are very good people. They are. But when shit hits the fan, how are people going to act? I don't know. Um, hopefully maybe uh the internet and so that's actually again with bitcoin being descriptive uh i see it as a safety net like if things do hit shit does hit the fan and it's like thank god we have bitcoin as at least a somewhat serviceable alternative in a chaotic transitionary period right it could be that it it could be used for that and Inshallah, that we'll never have to use it that way, but it could theoretically be. No, um, I know. I agree. It is stress-inducing sometimes, but yeah. In the meantime, it can be a really cool tool for people who want to shop, people who want to save, people who want to hire people outside of their immediate social circle. That's something I don't think we talk about enough in terms of employment opportunities. Everyone likes to complain about unemployment and especially in emerging economies, talk about how jobs are what they need, jobs are what they need, jobs are what they need. Where do you think jobs come from? And the ability to pay anyone anywhere in the world based on their skill set alone, I think is a huge game changer when it comes to Bitcoin. Yeah, it's massive, right? But the, the none of these things are mutually exclusive, right? They all they all play into they do. the beauty of Bitcoin, right? Like it acts as a safety net. It acts as a network that allows people to get paid anywhere in the world. It acts as a good savings technology. It acts as good black market money. It acts as a good speculation vehicle. All these use cases combined are what leads to it its success. It acts as a terrible privacy mechanism for right now. That's something that we can improve and certainly people are focused on, but in the meantime... So we talk about a lot on this podcast. So we talk about a lot, not only um, the privacy on a technical level, but on a social level. We need to change the way that people view Bitcoin so that you're not automatically subject to scrutiny just because you own some. No, I agree. I agree. No, that, again, that takes time and again, changing of minds individually one by one. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, again, it's a big problem. That's why I, with our, with our necks out there, right? It's like, if not, if not you, then who? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. so like, and that's like, it's, even though it's stressful sometimes, like it's, like you said, it's very important. Like, it's rewarding in a way. I think my favorite thing about what I do is that a lot of the stuff I write, a lot of the information that I find, I find it because it didn't exist. Um, some of the research I'm doing right now, I'm doing research in like three different countries related to different Bitcoin use cases. We'll see how many of them I can land to actually do stories. For one of them, I mean, every door I knock on, nobody has heard of in this particular region, um, people being able to use Bitcoin for a, a wide range of reasons. And people always come back to me with, huh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't exist. How, how, how in this context would someone use Bitcoin? And it's fun to, to think that like once I, be, I write it, that this information exists, that 
before didn't exist. And I hope that people will be able to use that to find use cases that, that work for them, to find ways that Bitcoin can fit into their own lives as opposed to only viewing it as a way to have number go up. No, no, I agree. But that, uh, that, um, what you just said immediately made me go to the, the like nineties today show clip. And they're like, what's that? The, the a sign, the a with the <laughs> circle around it, like talking about email and internet. Like, yeah, yeah. That was in the early nineties. That was not that long ago. And yeah. I think that's how people view Bitcoin now. Like what is, what is a private key? Like what, is, what is all this? And again, like over time, I think, uh, Number one, I think Bitcoin is uh, on the conscious of, of society at whole now. Like it's, it's. I think we overestimate how much people think about Bitcoin and how. I don't think they think about it all yeah. the time. I just think they they're aware of it, right? Like they're there's aware a ticker on CNBC, but they there's think of it wrong. That's hey, that's that's they just think a, it's, that's not that's is that is that Bitcoin's fault or is that no no no? It's not Bitcoin's fault, but it's certainly something that I hope that. Those of us who Katie have a face Carrick can change. Uh, Katie Carrick and Bryant Gumbel <laughs> thought about the internet and the email wrong. Paul Krugman thought the internet was not going to have any was going to be was not going to have any impact larger than the fax machine. That's like, true. A lot like, of these takes will not age well. That's for sure. Right, and so like with that in mind, like how how do we approach this? That's what I think about a lot. Like you're just going to in my mind, I concede that. People are going to misunderstand this drastically. People misunderstand everything. So that's not Bitcoin's fault at all. Uh, people read the same article and take away different piece of information. But what we can do is try and provide the best information possible in speaking to the issues and in the language that we see people want and understand, mm-hmm. right? Like we can't force someone to think Bitcoin is a good idea. We shouldn't want to. Um, but when they come back and they say Bitcoin is a terrible idea because it enables terrorism and is only for gambling, you can say, oh, well, look at XYZ and this other use case and this situation and then go, oh, so it's a tool and then it's however I use it. The problem is getting people to think, like we know casinos are for gambling, right? We, there, there's no one that's going to come up to you and be like, there's an alternative use case for casinos. We want people to understand that Bitcoin is an engine and not a casino. Like it can be used to go different places. It can be used to do different things. Right. And that's what I think about a lot um, when I've actually haven't been doing this that much more recently because it's just such a a task it's tr- explaining Bitcoin to people in person, <laughs> thinking of your audience and how they would, uh, what would click with them. Yeah. Uh, right. And so for, for my friends that are worried about the climate, I talk mm-hmm. about how Bitcoin mining particularly incentivizes us to be more efficient with our energy to go seek out cleaner renewable energies to it could cap it does it does I've seen it um, to cap vented natural gas that would otherwise be very bad for the atmosphere but the fact that it's capped and used to mine Bitcoin is a net positive right um, uh, when you're talking to finance types and money money types and digital gold really resonates with them. Um, the fact that there's no fed that can ming, uh, that can, uh, change an interest rate that's connected to Bitcoin on a whim, uh, that connects with them. There is no interest rate connected to Bitcoin, but, uh, that's the beauty of it. Um, so yeah, thinking of your audience mm. and that's like, as like people in 
creating content in this space and reporting on the space, are we speaking to specific audiences, right? Um, Depends on who's paying us. (laughs) What do you mean by that? I mean, exactly that. Uh, People talk about the media as if it's a, a basketball team. Or one dude in, a, in an ivory tower who's deciding where to go. And that's not it at all. It's an industry. And there are so many different people in, these indus- in the industry. And they are doing a bunch of different things. And like, who is it that I'm speaking to in an article? Depends on who paid me. Then I find out who their audience is and I talk to them. I don't try and speak to all people at all times. You, no one could. So what's Coindesk's uh, audience? audience in your mind? Uh, I think Coindesk's audience are global investors. And by investors, I mean anybody who purchases or might purchase or might be interested in um, an asset, a digital asset. Interesting. I, but, could, I could agree with that. But I don't think Coindesk's audience is your audience, right? Your audience is hardcore Bitcoiners. No, my audience, uh, yeah, definitely hardcore Bitcoiners. And then people, I when I started the newsletter, I never thought, and I don't think this is what I have going here is like big in any imagination, but I did never think it would get as big as it is now. Uh, I just was writing the newsletter for friends and family. So that's how my audience was originally the first newsletter I ever sent out went to 10 people and it was friends and family. And they were like all texting me and emailing me about Bitcoin in the spring of 2017. Oh my gosh. I remember that time. It's like, this is, uh, this is too much. I'm going to write a newsletter. You can all subscribe to it and I'll teach you one thing a day. And so originally it was my family and friends. And I like to think that's how, uh, when I'm writing the bent, that's still who I'm speaking to trying to connect to my family and friends, uh, that wanted to learn about Bitcoin and why it's important. So that's why I like to talk about a lot of the stuff that happens outside of Bitcoin that uh, really highlights why you should, uh, think Bitcoin's important. Why you should pay attention to it. Yeah. So, we don't really understand yet how digital media has changed us in a lot of ways. Like you, the simplest things, you'll go to restaurants, for example, and they'll find that people are ordering more of a certain dish than they used to because it looks better on camera. It has nothing to do with that dish actually tasting any better or people wanting to eat it more, but people pay for it more because of the, the appeal, right? And that applies to all different aspects of our lives. We all understand the concept that then when we're being watched, we change our behavior, but we've forgotten about the fact that we are subjecting ourselves to being watched by our family, friends, and social media followers as a, as a way of connecting with the world because we now live in very individualistic lives. Um, I mean, just connecting that to the idea of, of our audiences, whether you're an outlet or whether you're a podcaster or whether you are a journalist, right now we, we don't really understand how it is that we're supposed to authentically stay ourselves and yet scale that kind of relationship because I think you've done a really good job when it comes to building your brand and staying authentic to yourself as you've scaled beyond your family and friends. But for most media organizations right now, what they're just trying to do because they're thirsty for ad dollars that continue to flee as people realize that online ads don't pay the same as print ads used to a hundred years ago is they just want scale, 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 scale. So they just want as many eyeballs as they can get onto their website, regardless of whether or not those eyeballs are actually gaining any kind of valuable information from the site. Yeah. It's a tough battle. Yeah. You gotta, it's a, I mean, I'm very, very particular about what I cover and, uh, more importantly, who I take money from. Yeah. Um, it's important. And now it is, I mean, it is easy. I've had many, many 
companies approach me to throw money at, at this stuff and it's just it's hard it, turning away money but i do think it's important um uh but it again like it is at, at the end and that's also i think uh something i actually have an advantage over some media companies too is i'm completely bootstrap i don't have any investors looking at me like yo where's the money coming from the quality of content when you're not chasing ad dollars is always higher yes just point blank um that's no, it's, it's this weird chicken and egg problem. Like, you want to be successful, uh, and sometimes if you're at a media company backed by investors who are only uh, after money, which I don't think CoinDesk is, and I think no, definitely not. Um, uh, but there are definitely a plethora of media companies that are. Yeah. Um, it's easy to. And it's not wrong to be that. Like that is what companies generally do. Companies generally want money. That's, that's an okay goal for the company to have. The question is, what kind of scale and how will that af- affect the product that you're making, right? So a lot of people think today that all journalism is terrible and that all journalists are terrible and that there is no good media out there today. And that's just objectively not true. The problem is that it gets buried in the slush. Like we were talking earlier about signal to noise and how it'd be very easy for a nation state to drown out proper signal related to Bitcoin. We've already seen that today when it comes to real information. It is hard to stay well informed about a particular topic because you're just flooded with so much poor quality content that is proliferating because people want scale, right? So when you have just like everyone is fighting for each for for audiences and no one is fighting for sustainable sustainability with those audiences it gets really hard to find the good reporters and good outlets that are still producing content. It's not that there's no good journalism today. It's that there's so much journalism that it's harder to find the good stuff. No, I agree. And and I think, again, talking about like living at this weird inflection point. Yeah. um, I've been a believer. I mean, I worked at Barstool Sports, which is, uh, they just got valued at half a billion dollars and they, not everybody loves them. Uh, I've been I've been reading Barstool since I was in high school, but I I respect the hell out of Dave Portnoy, uh, the CEO, just from a work ethic perspective, showing up every day, producing content, growing a brand slowly over time, and uh, basically monetizing it off authenticity over time, which is what I aim to do here: is show up every day, slowly but surely, start from 10, 10 people reading to to the subscribership I have now. Um, that's, but the reason I'm following that, um, trajectory or that roadmap, if you will, is I think that is the future, right? Like people who individuals who, uh, have a sort of, uh, good grasp on the subjects they're covering, building an audience slowly over time. And then I would hope so. I think yeah. that model produces, it's, it's better for the readers, it's better for the producer, it's, it's really better for everyone involved. What it doesn't provide, though, is quick returns for shareholders. And so we need to, I'm not saying that the shareholder model is wrong, but we definitely shouldn't think of that it creates as bad the incentives. Pinnacle model. It creates bad incentives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It creates very bad incentives. And I think the Bitcoin mentality, when we think about simple design, um, conservative execution and extremely narrow focus can be applied to also media companies. And I, I think my personal opinion, Lee's personal opinion, is that's a very productive way to build a media company and a product. Um, but like we've seen in the crypto space, there is one Bitcoin 
and all others have taken different approaches, maybe with the exception of Monero in terms of conservative uh, decision-making. Um, Hard forking every six months is a conservative. Okay, that's exactly <laughs> kidding, my point. I'm kidding, I'm so kidding, we, we don't have other ones. We have Bitcoin. It is not a popular, attractive model to say, hey, wait for rewards, guys. <laughs> right. No, that's um, Alex Bosworth. Uh, actually, let me pull this up. He just tweeted out something that I, I shared right before we got on here. Um, and I think it's a very good point. Uh, Bitcoin's strategy to defeat its competition is to wage a long war of attrition. Centralized governances will eventually die due to succession issues and corruption. Uh, people will give in to temptations to hyperinflate. Marketing funds will run dry. Bitcoin will still be there. All right, so let's dissect that tweet because there are so many layers to that. <laughs> okay, let's start. Line one, Bitcoin strategy to defeat its competition is a wage, a long war of attrition. Just survive, survive. That is what we all hope. That is a great goal. Slow and steady wins the race. That is where the social scalability is, is key. Sustainability. We need the next generation of people to be valuing this thing. And we need the next generation of lawmakers to not be throwing those people in jail. So that is definitely a, an approach I admire, but one that for me speaks very strongly to the need to education, right? Agreed. Um, I do think more people are going to go to jail. <laughs> I Similar to the civil rights movement, right? Yes. It's going to yes. be like that, I think. Uh, we're going to need strong people to stand up and, and fight for, not be afraid to fight in public for this stuff and maybe do some jail time. I hope I don't go to jail. Please don't send me to jail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Marty, let's let's put put put. No, but if we're being honest here, like again, like we said, like we've been talking about this whole episode, the state is not not going to fight back. All right, on to the next sentence before I get thrown in in the clinker. Centralized governances will eventually die due to secession issues and corruption. Uh, I think Ethereum is very susceptible to this. People will give in to temptations to hyperinflate marketing funds will run dry. So I think all those points in the middle of this tweet, uh, you can check these boxes off for Ethereum. And I'll explain why. So the evolution of the USSR to what is modern Russia definitely did not eliminate corruption. Um, when we think about systems you, that fail based on corruption and what they become, they very rarely become something that is perfect or not even perfect, something that is free of corruption. They might become something that is slightly better. Like I think the Italian government today could be argued to be slightly better than the fascist government of a few decades ago. I don't think anyone would argue it is free of corruption. Anyone who believes that a group of people that is bigger than 50 will be free of corruption is very idealistic, and I would love to know where they meet people. <laughs> All right, so I'm confused here. Yeah, yeah. What, what uh, so are you saying Bitcoin is corrupt? No, no, no. He's saying that centralized governments will fail because of corruption. No, centralized governances. Ah, governances. Governances. As in the concept That's of being, my fault. That's my Philly yeah, yeah. accent, not enunciating it perfectly enough. So centralized governances within these blockchains. Oh, uh, within blockchains, I don't think we have an argument that most of them will fail. What do you mean? I mean, the vast majority of projects today that still exist, and there's already many that have failed, will fail. That's how technology works. That's how experiments work. But let's talk about governance in particular, mm. right? Like... Oh, like the governance structures of these blockchains need to be designed in a way that disincentivizes or I don't know if you could disincentivize Barclays corruption. has a very centralized governance mechanism and Barclays has been existing for quite some time. 
It does not. Yeah, but it's not a blockchain. We're talking specifically about blockchains it, here. It doesn't challenge the status quo. But whether they do it with blockchain or whether they do it with some other kind of database is kind of irrelevant. Like you could totally have a company that exists today as a cryptocurrency project that ev evolves and becomes like a traditional corporation. But the benefit of maybe some people, some places are able to use it without KYC. That's the thing that could happen. It could happen, but Bitcoin would be a better alternative in the case. And that's, that's the point Alex is trying to make here. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Alex is wrong in that. I think that if what your goal is is self-sovereign money, then Bitcoin would be a better alternative than any kind of centralized governance. Agreed. Agreed. And so this is... But the idea that they will fail because they are centralized when the vast majority of corporations today are centralized... We're talking about blockchains here. So the failure of these chains blockchain would be... Blockchain is database. Replace it with database. <laughs> I know. I'm talking about public <laughs> blockchains particularly. So cryptocurrencies uh, that are not... like. He's talking about Bitcoin against other cryptocurrencies. And yeah, I don't think I, I think that there's that that is a very strong argument he has. Yes, and I think I think we're seeing evidence of this play out already. Uh, For sure, we've seen token projects that are <laughs> suffering from leadership issues, as if they could reinvent governance, and people haven't been trying to figure out that since you know we came out of caves. Governance should be rough consensus and running code. Got governance is dictated by the software you download on your node, in my opinion. All right, next sentence. People will give in to the temptation to hyperinflate. Check. Probably. <laughs> it's already happened with Ethereum. They pushed back the difficulty bomb many times. They just pushed it back four million. I don't want to harp specifically on Ethereum as if what they're doing is different than any what anyone else is doing. We can talk about any token project, and the temptation to give yourself more money is always there and usually wins okay let's pick on zcash zcash they're <laughs> putting in another dev reward um they voted that in okay so i i devil's advocate for zcash i think that the people involved with the zcash community and i mean that the leaders of that community have done more for the further study of privacy research and of cryptocurrency research in general than most other projects around they, they have been very, very good about finding people who are doing good work and funding them, regardless of whether or not that work turned into money for their shareholders. That's admirable. Maybe admirable, but I don't think it's the best way to make a cryptocurrency. I don't really know how to make a cryptocurrency. The fact that Bitcoin works uh, blows my mind every day, and I'm so glad that I was not given the task of designing it. <laughs> <laughs> right? Isn't that... Right? That's, I mean, can you... Can you can Bitcoin's design be improved upon? Like, I think it's perfect. I think, again, going back to its simplicity. I think simplicity is good. The incentives uh, that align the stakeholders. I don't know if it could be designed any better. Um, just from an incentive design system, uh, systems as incentive design. I don't know. I guess we'll see, right? It's it's too hard to say how that incentive system is is panning out. It's it's So far, it's money. And so far, it is continuing to be money. And that, in itself, is an accomplishment. Well, let's abstract the money away from it, too. Like, its goal is to produce blocks roughly every 10 minutes in a distributed fashion using mm -hmm. proof of work, SHA-256, uh, uh, hashing algorithm. Yeah, so uh, far, so far, that seems to be working great. It's it, like, so far. You need to, so, you need to be able to hash or create blocks via proof of work. And then transactions need to be propagated throughout the network through the nodes. And so far, uh, that's been pretty much nonstop, pretty much, not nonstop. There's been up, up time is 99.999 something percent. Um, mm -hmm. But 
uh, it's pretty dependable doing what it's set out to do. Yeah, yeah, the Bitcoin network so far works. That's a that's an accomplishment that is a success that cannot be taken lightly because it's a crazy idea. The fact that it works. I love crazy ideas. Okay, here's another one. So like uh, picking on Zcash again, they're with their dev fund. Uh, so 25% of the block is it still 25%. I'm not sure exactly what. The I don't remember exactly either. Dev fund is, but uh, marketing funds will run dry. We're seeing consensus said recent layoffs, uh, another round of layoffs. Marketing funds eventually like run dry. That is not specific to cryptocurrencies, and it will probably turn out to be just as true in this. Is marketing sector. even important? Like, so does is marketing important, or does the tool market itself? Right, that's the big. How question. many surrealist painters can you name? <sighs> nah. Surrealist. What is surrealism again? Um, so that's like when you have things that are painted in, in a very fantastical way that kind of plays with reality, like stretches, oh, it turns. It's a, Dali is one of my favorites. Exactly. You know Dali. You want to know why you know Dali? Because he used to walk around doing the most ridiculous things. There were so many other painters at the time that were probably a little bit better than him technically and were doing the same kinds of experiments. But Dali knew how to sell. He, he knew was how to a attract genius. An audience. He knew how to get away without he having a, any money. He, he was a diva. And the reason we all remember him today is because people talked about him so much when he was alive. Same with Andy Warhol. Like, I don't think Andy Warhol shit's that good, but people, so then he became bigger than his art. Exactly. So then we return to the question of, do we need marketing? I don't think that we need to prioritize marketing, and I don't even think we do marketing very well. Uh, we, um, but I do think that the sustainability of a perspective or an art form is very much defined by how many people carry it on because a lot of people won't. A lot of people will fade off and they, they won't care. So the bigger breadth of people that you have committed to a thing, the more likely it is that thing will continue to exist. Agreed. Agreed. Would uh, Picasso be a surrealist too? Picasso is also a surrealist, All yeah. Right. Yeah, All right. Um, and so in the long war of attrition, Bitcoin will still be there at the end. I think that like technically speaking, Bitcoin definitely has considerable sustainability. I think it is very, very likely that it will also be sustainable in terms of a public narrative. That is a, that is a very strong likelihood, but we'll have to see. All right. That's why number go up. Digital I, gold. Yeah, but there are Bitcoin so many technologies that died that we, no one remembers today that were very good technologies. So it, it's all about, I think, it, it's all about how people use it, why they use it, and who uses it. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think uh, I'm optimistic. I'm yeah. optimistic. I'm, but I'm an eternally optimistic person. I think Even though we talk about a lot of depressing <laughs> stuff on this <laughs> podcast and in the newsletter. Believe it or not, freaks, I am optimistic. Yeah. I mean, I think that Alex has a really good point in terms of marketing budgets eventually running dry and centralized governance being... And inher inherently problematic. This is the couch. It's not me farting. Um, <laughs> it sounds like I'm farting in here. I'm just moving, rubbing up against the leather couch here. Um, no, I agree. And that's, well, that's why I'm still baffled. Like how you think Ethereum's having more success when I would argue their, their governance is vastly more centralized. They have already uh, basically changed like that, and that's the thing. These things are to be successful in a perpetuity. You have to be able to 
they have to be dependable. You have to be able to, to yes. know that they are going to be what they said they were one day into yes. the next. And I don't think uh, what Ethereum was marketed as two years ago is even close to what it is today. Yes. I don't think Ethereum is more successful than Bitcoin. Like if a man fell into a coma... <laughs> three years ago and woke up they'd be like how did they change the narrative this much like how did they and yet people are still on board that is a great question that person would have to think to themselves maybe the value that ethereum is giving people has less to do with the technology itself and more to do with the belief system it's selling and you can sell a belief are there really that many more people i mean it's not it's very far away from all-time highs it's very far away from all-time highs. look this is not me saying that ethereum is better than bitcoin i'm not saying that it's going to be more successful in the long run i'm not even saying it's as successful as it was in 2017 when it was on everyone's tongue but i am saying that in some areas where bitcoin has struggled it has not and it's worth thinking about why and how and if that impacts Bitcoin even. What, uh, so areas being uh, making it more palatable in a lot of people's minds. Areas being making it more palatable and getting people who are already at the table to not dismiss it. Mm-hmm. When perhaps they, they could and should yet they do not, and instead are invited to a seat at the table. People, it was surprising to me how people still can't describe Ethereum, if you ask them, but they'll tell you that they're curious about it, and you'll ask them about Bitcoin, and they'll tell you they're not curious about it. That's fascinating. And that's, I mean, and that, is that greater fool fallacy coming? Or not fallacy, greater fool, like just getting bamboozled by buzzword because I saw you yeah. had a tweet like I'll, I'll uh, you said you would uh, do a lot of research trying to understand these things and then you'd get bamboozled with buzzwords and you'd be like why do you need a blockchain for this? No, it's not even bamboozled. It's like I don't understand computer science as well as I could, and so someone will tell me something and I'll be like I don't believe that's how computer science works, and they'll be like yes, and they'll use very fancy words, and they'll have to go in back and learn the definitions of fancy words, and then return to them and be like actually what you just said is this sentence, and that sentence is objectively false. So can we return <laughs> to my original question without thinking that like you can talk, you know, over my head in terms of terminology that won't be difficult to do, but. The fundamental point that I'm trying to get at, if you can't answer that question, probably you should hire a different CTO. Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, and keep it simple, stupid. That's a mantra to live by. Yeah, and, yeah, for sure. Uh, um, we're almost two hours in here. Oh, I'm sorry. I've just done nothing but ramble. No, this is what this podcast is for. It's incredible. I love these conversations. Uh, um, What's something that you've been curious about that maybe I could help you think through when it comes to Bitcoin? Um, what am I curious about? I think we need to change the mining narrative. Because mm. uh, I do think it's a bad narrative uh, that Bitcoin mining is boiling the oceans and it's bad for the environment. I think the exact opposite is true. I think I wholeheartedly believe, uh, based off of things I've seen with my own eyes, that Bitcoin is actually good for the environment in the long run. Um, and, uh, again, the, uh, false equivalencies that are thrown at Bitcoin just because Bitcoin miners consume a lot of energy, uh, Mm -hmm. is, is something we need to combat, uh, 
pretty quickly. So like if you're talking about a, a government attacking Bitcoin, that actually might be uh, the number one thing they'll use as a virtue signal that it's destroying the environment and try to shut down miners, uh, not fully understanding that it, it is actually good. Yeah, I agree that that is a way that people generally try and marginalize the industry and make it seem as if it's doing more harm than making pants. Right. <laughs> Fast fashion is, it makes all kinds of waste and you don't hear people being like, right. that's it, H&M, we should shut them down. That's the thing that pisses me off the most about the climate debate is that it's it's just completely, it's just bad framing and just get everything gets framed terribly um yeah it's like, context it, matters we need nine trillion dollars and we're going to fix the the climate it's a green new deal um how about like you said don't uh don't incentivize fast fashion like i have two pairs of pants i buy a pair of vans maybe twice a year maybe every eight months i'll buy a pair of vans and those are my shoes yeah like people with climate particularly, it pisses me off because nobody wants to take personal responsibility and change their life. Yeah. It's, and if we're going to fix the pollution and the, the waste in the world, it's going to take a collection of individual actions and big brother's not going to say that like, do it for us. And that's what makes me, and I think Bitcoin hmm. is a perfect Bitcoin mining particularly is a perfect uh, thing that exists and presents an actionable Thing you can take to be more efficient with energy waste, uh, particularly natural gas. That's that's number one, and then number two, it also provides an incentive to go experiment with renewables, stranded renewables, particularly like these are uh, uh, energy sources that up to the point of Bitcoin were untapped because there was no incentive to go use them. Now that these stranded renewables are some of the cheapest, some of the cheap, that provide some of the cheapest energy in the world. There's finally an incentive to go experiment with them. And maybe. Maybe that's how incentives will play out. Definitely. That's what's happening. It's what's happening now. Yeah. Geothermal, hydraulic, hydroelectric. Or I just remember people were saying the same kinds of things about thermal energy maybe five years ago, and they didn't become the hot new thing that everyone thought they were. What do you mean? Um, gosh. So... Right back when I first moved to the Middle East, I did a little bit of environmental reporting. Not very much. I wouldn't say that I focused on it as a beat. But I very much remember people being like, in 10 years from now, everything will be green energy. And look at all of these. Like, look at how good, how effective it is, how efficient it is. Like, those are the incentives. And then people actually didn't do those things because those incentives didn't play out the way that people expected. Well, yeah, uh, that's when renewables are forced on a market. I think of Germany in particular, which tried to move like 25% of their economy to wind and solar. And it come to find that yeah. the clouds block the sun every once in a while. <laughs> uh, the wind doesn't always blow and it actually takes a lot of energy to mine the iron ore and other resources that are needed to actually build these technologies. And then they get phased out pretty quickly. With big, like with the experimenting with renewables that I'm talking about, it's, you're not forcing it on the market. The market is going out and just, hey, these energy sources are cheaper than the energy on the grid, so I'm going to go use them because I want cheap power so I get more profit with my Bitcoin. It's like a market incentive driving the innovation, not the innovation being forced on the market. So not to derail too much, 
But I think it's really important when we talk about the market, just like when we talk about the media, we remember that the concept of free market doesn't exist. Markets are defined by definition by who can trade in them what and how mean? they can trade. So there's just never been any kind of free market. That's not a thing that's ever existed. I, I, I would argue, yeah, I would argue we don't live in a truly capitalistic society, but the free market does exist. Like people, so, people trade freely throughout the world. Yes, there are some. Who trades freely around the world? How do they trade? Certainly if you're living in Iran, you're not trading very freely. And if you... That's, that's the case in Iran. Just, just because Iran doesn't have free trade doesn't mean free markets don't exist outside of it. So the people that have access to some of these renewable energy resources, their activities will be defined by the local regulators, right? Like if you're in Canada, for example, and you're wanting to use geothermal energy. Screw you, Hydro-Quebec. <laughs> um, so the government will decide who can use a resource and when, and what is the acceptable ways to sell that resource. And even if we think back to ancient Greece, for example, like the very term market from Agora, that was what they called the market. It was literally the place in which the rulers decided that is where people trade and you were not allowed to trade objects outside of the Agora. And when you're in the Agora, there was set prices. So like the concept of a market is by definition when we fence something off and be like, you can have an activity within here and we define how that activity works. You could not trade um, natural gas or, or whatever kind of energy for babies. You know, like we all, we all decide, you know, like that's not a thing that people could do. There, there are always rules in terms of how it is you can sell a thing, where you can sell a thing, who you can sell it to, and how it is you can abstract a thing. So like the market will be determined by people. Like they will define how it is the market is structured. And so with that being said, I very much hope that the Bitcoin mining industry will continue to move towards uh, renewable energy and that they will be permitted to do so by the market conditions. But we're not sure what market conditions will be in the future. So we can't say for sure that will happen, only that that's what we want. Black markets exist, though, and they're free markets just by their nature, right? They, they, are, they are... They're definitely free markets. They route around the regulation and say, fuck you, we're going to trade freely. It might be illegally. Marginalized and free are not the same thing. They uh, could not walk out into the street and sell heroin. The yes, fact the people do that all the time. People do. People do. But just the very, <laughs> the very fact that you have to um, be aware of being caught defines a black market. Defines who it is they'll sell to, what price it is they'll sell, and how it is they'll yeah, sell. And it just comes down to how much your risk you're willing to take on, and that's free uh, for anybody to decide for themselves. So there are aspects of the black market that are freer than the hospital, um, if we're thinking about like the specific um, instance of morphine. But I would not define a black market as free because there are severe risks and costs to operating in that market. Well, how would you define a free market? A free market would, would be, which we have not seen, in which all participants are consensually choosing to... Um, participate and how they participate. I don't think anyone would like to be a drug dealer. They would very much prefer to have a cute shop in San Francisco. The, the fact that we have black markets is because the market is not free. But the black markets are free markets. They like I can text a plethora of drug dealers to send me pot right now and they will do it and I will give them money. I actually stopped smoking pot so this is going to this is a this is a hypothetical now. Hypothetically, if you were uh, in Broad City, you could do this. <laughs> yeah, like and that's that's what a free market is—just two individuals uh, meeting. That, that, 
define a free market at its simplest form two individuals meeting and conducting uh commerce in the way they want to the yeah way they want to okay so fair i think that but that's so that i guess also highlights the point that we were making earlier about bitcoin and that you don't necessarily need um, a government to condone an activity in order for it to be relatively safe and mainstream mm-hmm. but on the other hand it is very important to know who will be subject to the the regulation right because like you can do that because we're both white if if we were black having this conversation it would be much scarier to think about um, going out in the street and buying drugs because you know the laws will be enforced on you in a different way i agree with that but yet it still happens it does still happen i mean it's it's not as if only white people smoke weed like definitely people take risks Mm -hmm. but it's it's not to say that this needs to be changed because I don't know if it can be changed. It's not to say that this is wrong. It's just to acknowledge the fact that the free market is not equally free to all people of the same ability. Um, Circumstance matters. I would agree that um, uh, some people uh, with a certain profile are profiled and treated differently than others within the system. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, a free market, like if they, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of Eric Gardner up in the Bronx right now, just getting choked out for, for a fucking Lucy, right? Like, that's crazy. That's insane. It can happen to anybody. But True. that was like, he, he, he ended up in that situation because he's engaging in a free market activity, buying a Lucy from a bodega, which is fucked. He, that was completely unjustified. Those cops are in jail now, right? I don't know. To um, be honest. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think, we're getting like we're getting the technicals of free versus unfree markets. Yeah. But the reason I feel like that's relevant is because Bitcoin is not really accessible to all people in the same ways. That's not Bitcoin's fault. That's not our responsibility. But it is important to acknowledge that we can um, first off focus on areas in which there might be greater restriction or difficulty. But second off, in order to acknowledge the the value of different solutions and use cases. There might be solutions that are not just straight Bitcoin that are very relevant to someone's context if they're having a hard time accessing Bitcoin. I'm not shilling any particular crypto project as that solution, but I am saying that because the people that operate within a free market are them, will be treated differently based on social circumstances, based on culture, we will need a wide variety of solutions and we cannot pretend that Bitcoin is, uh, that Bitcoin negates politics. Like we always talk about like Bitcoin is apolitical. Bitcoin itself is an inanimate object and the people that uh, use it and create it have politics. And so the expression of Bitcoin, like the reality of Bitcoin will always have politics, even if itself as an inanimate object, the table is not political, the Bitcoin is not political, but the people that made it had politics that influenced the making and the people that use it have politics that influence how and where they use it, right? Yep, totally agree. But Bitcoin doesn't know, right? Like so... Bitcoin's inanimate. It has no feelings. Yeah, and it doesn't know who's sending the messages and who's receiving them. And that's also the beauty of the digital age, talking about enabling free markets. Like, pseudonyms, uh, you have no idea what they look like, what their sex is, how old they are. Um, And if they provide you with an invoice and you uh, want to get what they're providing, like, there's 
very little other than the reputation of their pseudonym. Uh, reputations. Reputations are important. Are very important. They're important for free market, engaging in free market activities. Uh, They're easy to destroy and difficult to build. Yes, they are. It's mm. something I think about a lot. Yeah? It's hard. I mean, yeah. Especially in this space. Yeah. You know how vicious people are. Oh, my God. <laughs> I think that I've just tried a strategy of messing up so many times that I don't think I could ruin my reputation anymore. Uh, no, it's like it's, they'll turn on you in a day. Yeah. This is true. Like that. Um, and that's not saying that I self-censor or do anything like that. It's just... Oh, I certainly do at this point. I think... Yeah. I, I don't think it's it's dishonest to realize if I volunteer a piece of information, I will be crucified for it. And so I will choose to avoid crucifixion. <laughs> like, yeah. I bet huh. people are going to react to this podcast. I'm so scared. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be. I, I wish. Yeah. That open conversations important, right? Like, well, well, uh, a, yeah, I, we I, need to flesh out these ideas. And we can't be afraid to do that. I think it's important for us not to be ashamed to be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. Most of us are wrong about most shit. Yeah, and it doesn't make me or anyone else a bad person. What makes what is a sign of character? What is a sign of um, an admirable person is someone who can acknowledge when they are wrong and even try and do something about it. Right. That's mm-hmm. the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just be honest with yourself. That's that, that's a, it at the end of the day. Like, don't try and please other people. Just be honest with yourself. If you're actually going to be happy at the end of the day and have fulfillment you have to have the ability to be honest with yourself which means admitting that you were wrong at some point so this is really important especially when you think as media creators right because people get outraged about any little thing that they perceive as incorrect and then they think that this is a bad journalist or this is a bad um pundit or, or podcaster that this person is inherently bad because i saw something that does not align with my reality first off one of the most fun things about being a journalist for over a decade is that you'll see people that will have complaints about the same article and they will argue that you got a fact wrong and they'll both have very different arguments about whether it's the correct fact. And they'll both have evidence that is relative to, to the fact. And you start to realize that like everyone has their own perception of what is truth. And there are some ways, there are some things that are easier to judge than others, right? Like two plus two is four and that's fine. But there are a lot of ways that can be interpreted and there's a lot of, there's a lot of ambigu- um, ambiguity and nobody thinks that their perspective is opinion. They think it's fact. And one of the most comforting things is just to realize that literally everyone thinks that. And so even if you get outraged about something that you perceive is wrong, like chances are there's someone else who is outraged over the same thing for, who thinks it's wrong in the completely opposite direction. And the best thing that I think a content creator can do is first off to hear everyone out as much as they can, try and adhere to the most unbiased facts that they humanly can, knowing that that's an impossible goal, just like decentralization is an impossible goal. And then also... (laughs) We'll come back on that later. (laughs) Perfect decentralization is impossible. Perfect accuracy is impossible. And we need to like own up when we do something wrong and want to fix it. The sign of a good journalist is not they never make a mistake. It's that when a mistake gets made, they pay attention to it right mm-hmm. away. Yeah. No, and it's, I completely agree. And that's actually the beauty of my name is that uh, I was able to name my newsletter Marty's Bent and Bent, <laughs> Bent being an inclination towards what I believe. That's honest. Everyone right. has a perspective. Everyone has a bias. Yeah. And this is like, and that's, and that's how it started. Like, again, going back to friends and family, like I'm not an expert here, but this is uh, based off what I've learned throughout the years studying the space this is my perspective on mm-hmm. these topics. And I try to be open with that too. Like, 
It's called Marty's Bent. It's my inclination towards how I view the space. People ask me a lot about when I first came into the space and if it was really different than covering things in the Middle East. And I actually have to tell them it's not and that the the training that I got working specifically in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict was so important to when I came into the space, specifically because... Anytime something happens, you know, so you'll have um, an operation, which is like an attack. Israel attacks Gaza. And the Gazans will say that this amount of people died. The Israeli army will say this amount of people died. The Amnesty International will have a totally different number. And people are going to yell at you no matter what it is you say that you got it wrong because they are going to believe one of these sources and they won't believe the other sources. How do you try and report in the context in which literally everyone, it's a very, very small area. Imagine like the size of New Jersey everyone is involved in some way. Like whether it's your brother who's in the army or whether it's your, um, your boss who um, was thrown in jail or whatever it is, there is no person in this vicinity that has been there for more than five years that has not been impacted in some way by the conflict. So they all have a bias about the conflict, right? So just like I've discovered this is very, very similar in the cryptocurrency space, there is no objective source of truth even harder than in Israel because you don't have Amnesty International. It's the blockchain. It's the blockchain. Great. So who can interpret the blockchain? So this is exactly what I'm getting at. What do you mean? Like, I can't read the blockchain. Can you? Macarella can. I can. I mean, John I, Newberry can. I can read it. I mean, I understand. Good for you, man. I'm getting there, I mean, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't read all the code that uh -huh. make Bitcoin, but I understand how transactions, how yeah, the so hexing I, works, how the I could like look for a specific transaction. Keys. Probably, but like the blockchain is only transparent to people who understand how to read it, right? So when you're reporting in the space and you're not super genius, it takes a while to learn how to read this data. No, didn't take you a while. It's taken me time. No, but I'm just trying to get at whether that makes, makes it not transparent or a source of objective truth. It's a source of objective truth because there's very fundamental functions that are run it is and it isn't so let's, so being mm -hmm, objective mm -hmm. objective truth being that transactions happened at a certain point of time yes and they were mine that is that's that's what the objective yes. truth is yes. that's all it is yes that's all so you it know is. what happened when that's the objective you truth. know it all that happens when most people on planet earth don't most no. people on planet earth cannot read that data even so, it doesn't change the fact that it is. It is. It is. It is objective truth. It's so it's an objective truth. But then there's Just a lot of things. Whether or not people can understand that truth, that's the that's what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah. So there's two different things that I'm getting at here. So one is um, that not a lot of people can understand that understand that objective truth, and it reminds me a lot of like I would go into press conferences, for example. I don't speak fluent Arabic. It's about people's understanding. It's not about the truth. Yeah, but. Hmm. You're, you're not going to have everyone in the world be a programmer. That's just not a no, likely reality. Nor, nor is that, yeah, and they don't need to be. They don't need to be. Some people are always going to rely on a translator to tell them what that data means. And some people will claim this data that says this transaction happened at this specific time, it happened because X, Y, Z. The blockchain does not say that. The blockchain only says the transaction happened. Yeah, that's all that matters. So someone else who is interpreting this data for the public will say that the data says something it doesn't say. And people who cannot read the data will not be able to... This is not a fault of Bitcoin. What I'm not, I'm not saying here yeah, is it's a not, fault It's not that the data is, data is impure. It's that the people trying to describe it are... Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, 
or don't understand it. Yes. What I'm saying is, is that when I came into this space, having a background in trying to figure out with people with wildly different opinions and often working with translators because I don't speak fluent Arabic, I very quickly recognized what I was dealing with was a problem of translation. Like I would ask the same people to tell me what this data meant and people would give me wildly different answers. Just like with the article, only this time they're looking at a blockchain. And I started to realize that, like, of course, reporters are getting all this stuff wrong because they're relying on faulty translation. And the reason they're relying on faulty translation is those translators have a particular bias that the reporter doesn't understand. Like, I can use an Arabic translator and he'll be translating something for me. But if I know that he has a particular bias or particular leaning, I'll ask him harder, like, he said this word, this was a specific word. And like, let's look, I know the alphabet a little bit. I'll like, that didn't sound like that to me. And then he'll be like, oh, well, no, he said it this way. I'm like, yeah, but that's a different meaning. And I understand that you interpreted it that way. But if I don't know the motivation of the translator, then I can't find flaw in the translation. So a lot of people don't understand the motivations of their blockchain translators. And so they can't understand why it is they're getting faulty information. Yeah. Yeah. It's, again, that's a problem with the translators, not the blockchain. It's a problem with the translators. It is something to think about because we need to assume that the vast majority of people will not speak blockchain. That's right now, right? Like, yeah. I have faith in the younger generations that they'll learn and they will be learning. And just think of like the biggest cohort of our population is in the working force of millennials, but now we have a majority of, actually, I don't know the demographics off the top of my head. I think I can sit, no, it doesn't make sense that boomers would make up the biggest contingent, does it? No, no. Uh, Gen Z, I think is bigger than us. Gen Z. Um, yeah. So it that, also depends on where you are, right? Yeah. Like the vast majority of the population in Tunisia is under 25. Yeah. And like so that's insane. And regardless of the demographics, like I just think, uh, the more, uh, people grow up in a natively digital world, the better understanding they'll have. Of course. Yeah. And so that's, again, it's a product of our point in time. Like we're in this weird, where do you up. think they're going to be getting this blockchain education if they're not going to their Ethereum sponsored classes? I mean, if could, you they, go to school. They tinker with it. They download the software and play with it themselves. That's how you, they learn. And that's what's... So there's an element of that. There are some people that will be smart enough to learn a language themselves. Most of us go to school, right? Like most of us are not smart enough to be dropped into a foreign environment and become fluent in that language. Well, it depends. What about your native language? You didn't go to school to learn that. You just... You did. You went to school to learn how to speak pretty. Speak pretty, but before that, you learn, you know how yeah, true. to communicate. and Because people did it back and forth with us. So what we're assuming then is people are going to back and forth uh, blockchain data with them? No, it's just people are going to be interested, download it, and ch- how the fuck does this work? And try to figure it out for themselves, and then obviously so, ask help along the way. But yeah, you just, like, for it to be not a source of objective truth, you'd have to... Again, going back to I believe that most people are good. You have to believe that a lot of people are are completely bullshitting, right? Yeah. I do think that the blockchain offers some semblance of objective truth, but how people interpret that truth, which is not the fault of Bitcoiners and not the problem of anyone who's developing the technology itself, is not clear. Just because you give someone clear information doesn't mean that they'll actually receive that clear information. No. No. But it doesn't mean the information's faulty. It does not mean the information's faulty. Uh, I guess like the original way that we, we transitioned onto this is I was saying that it felt really familiar to me in terms of translation issues. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I see a lot. Like yeah, most people I mean, they just don't understand Bitcoin. And it's not because they didn't read. It's not because they didn't go to the right place. And it's not because they are dumb. It's just because they didn't 
interpret the information properly. I think we're still discovering what Bitcoin is. It's this alien technology. And we like, have <laughs> our eyes closed and we're trying to figure out like what the corners of the, of yeah, the room we're in are. This and is true. So Bitcoin is revealing itself to us as we're trying to learn it, right? Like, yeah, for sure. Like it at the end of the day, like it's binary. It's not binary, but like Bitcoin has properties that'll enable certain use cases uh, maybe that we don't even understand. They exist. We just haven't found them yet. This is right? true, but it's also really important to remember that Bitcoin is not a rock. We invented Bitcoin. Bitcoin, Bitcoin continues to be invented. Was and it us or was it an AI? It was it an alien? <laughs> exactly. No, it's an alien. But so like we can impact this alien today, here, now. Like in these early days in which we are figuring out what is Bitcoin, people can have a really big impact. I mean, individual people have a huge impact. Oh, we, I mean, we saw this with narratives in the beginning, mm -hmm. like Roger Ver, Bitcoins for fast, instant, private transactions. That was the narrative for a while. And again, that's a translator doing a terrible job of translating what, what mm -hmm. the capabilities of that, um, that technology are. And that translator, years later, and I'm... I don't want to pick I've on not, Roger. I've not personally spoken to Roger while and i do not believe that he he wasn't the only one pumping that either i'm sure that was fed to him by faulty translators. do you know who is pumping that narrative now hamas hamas is promoting bitcoin as private <laughs> that is their big argument keep going yeah, hopefully <laughs> so, keep going for it right, good luck but that's what i'm saying is that like years later this unrelated group that has no connection still is carrying that twisted translation no, no, I agree. I agree. No, we have a lot of work to do too. And it's not that it's necessarily our individual responsibility. It's to the contrary, our privilege and opportunity in order to help something that could be really cool, stay really cool and impact even more people in ways that today wouldn't even be fathomable. No, I agree. No, that's why, that's why I believe we write and talk about this as much <laughs> as we do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think you'd be here unless you thought it was important. Do you think? Like, yeah. I mean, I will say that cryptocurrency journalism in particular is very well paid compared to other types of journalism. Human rights, like if you report on refugee issues, you're going to be poor for forever. You're in this for the money, Lee? <laughs> but I will say, I wouldn't keep doing it if I wasn't super fascinated by it. It's actually an issue in my life. Like, I was sitting down the other day and trying to think about stories I want to still write that have nothing to do with Bitcoin. I'm young and I have a long career ahead of me. What else do I want to do? I couldn't think of things like anything I would come up with. It'd be like, Oh, I could do that. It was like, but is that really more interesting than the future of money? Mm, probably not. <laughs> right. Is there anything bigger right now or more worthwhile? I think there's a different, uh, many, I, many different again, facets of the future of money, right? Like there's so many different aspects of it. There are so many things that touches and affects things that before I got into Bitcoin was super worried about. Yeah. Like, uh, and, Again, self-sovereignty and uh, like the power of the state over the individual, like that's daunting uh, when you try to figure out how to fix that throughout, through the political system. Bitcoin provides this tool to affect that outside of it. So I disagree with you pretty strongly here. I do not think that Bitcoin can fix external systems. I do think Bitcoin can, could provide a tool that I could personally use in the way that I interact with that system. Right. Like, I don't think Bitcoin is going to, like, stop governments from being corrupt. No, neither do I. But again, it's all about the incentive system that basically just moves the market towards a system where it's harder for them to be corrupt. So 
Last time I'll mention Ethereum, I swear. <laughs> you can mention them as, as much as you want. I don't care. I think the Ethereum community has really figured out something sharp when it comes to incentives. And they don't realize that they figured it out. What's that? Social ties are a very, very strong incentive. Even stronger sometimes than a monetary incentive. What do you mean? A lot of people go to Ethereum events because... That's where their friends are. They go to Ethereum events because they can make friends very easily. And you could argue that that's because people who want to show to you are, are going to be nice. And that's a fair argument. But it doesn't negate the fact that people go there sometimes, a lot of times, not because they think that they're going to get rich. Not everyone. Some people do. But sometimes people go there just because they want to make friends. That social incentive is very valuable to them and they will hold on to that token and they will participate in that event and they will contribute to that code base regardless of whether or not they know how to code. And they will do all of these things based not on the incentive of money, I'll but on the incentive of social acceptance. I'd push back on that strongly and say Bitcoin certainly has that. It's I, very pronounced. BitDevs in New York tonight, like you'll see people, non-coders, who are just there because they want to meet other Bitcoiners. I've been to conferences where people show up just because they want to meet the people they've only interacted with on the internet uh, in person. I personally, I meet with probably like two or three Bitcoiners a week who hit me up in DMs and just want to get drinks and talk because they like the newsletter. Like, there's I agree with you. I don't think that Bitcoin has this in Ethereum, or that Ethereum has it and Bitcoin doesn't. I do agree that Bitcoin has very strong social incentives. But it, Bitcoiners generally don't acknowledge that that's why they're going to a thing. Sometimes they do. but sometimes, But most of the time they say, no, 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 I'm in this for the money I'm, I'm in this to moon to go to the moon and a lot of times to the contrary in ethereum events people will look down on you if you're in this for the money and they will very openly talk about the social incentives it doesn't mean that it's a stronger social incentive than the bitcoin or social incentive i do think if you go to BitDevs tonight there's not going to be one mention of the price um right? i go to BitDevs all the time and it's one of my favorite things i think it's great i also understand 30 to 40 percent of what they say and I think that's, <laughs> that's again, it's, it's, but it doesn't mean that it's not bad. That's an okay thing. It's not but bad, is, but it's, it's not like, but it's not like Bitcoin meetups are all about like number go up, number go up. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that Bitcoin is bad in that sense. I'm just saying that I will say as someone who has made many friends in the Bitcoin community, it was harder. I like to think we're friendly. I think we're friends. I think was it hard good. when we met? It was not hard when we met. Was yeah. it? We, we had beers, ate some fried chicken. It was yeah. pretty easy. It was really good chicken. I was into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 and it's, no, I do, I mean, I do think people extrapolate the, the vitriol, quote unquote vitriol. Some people see the vitriol, other people see it as. Uh, I think like, the vitriol what, only exists online. If you go to BitDev, it's the most welcoming and fun place exactly. and it's so nice. There are not going to be any dances. And the level of vegan, like the level, it's just a different, it's a different thing. My like, crowd is vegan. <laughs> Jonah Chinelli's vegan. We do have Bitcoin uh, vegans. And I, that's, I, Matt Corral is the only person I'll go to a vegan restaurant for. I think people really misconstrue when it is that people who like Bitcoin talk about other things as that means that that thing is better than Bitcoin. And that's not the case. I, I think that Bitcoin is at the moment wildly the most successful and it'd be very difficult to argue otherwise for other things. But that doesn't make me unable to acknowledge that some other things have interesting have yeah have interesting points and i i don't think that i want bitcoiners to lead a dance sorry for answering sorry for finishing your sentence you know that's, that's exactly 
I don't want Bitcoiners to lead a dance, you know, like I don't want them to become Ethereans and I don't want Bitcoin to become Ethereum. I think Bitcoin has a distinct culture that I love and want to maintain. I guess the point of that was just being that exactly that within the Ethereum, um, within the Bitcoin ecosystem, there are more incentives at play than just mining rewards or just number go up. There are actually a lot of incentives at play that maybe we don't talk about as openly. And it might be worthwhile to think about the social incentives, the reputation that is associated with certain people and like how it is that it impacts how the technology evolves. Yeah. And I think the uh, subsect subcultures within Bitcoin there are many they kinds like, of Bitcoin cultures. Yeah, they like to lead into it too. Like, uh, especially if people lash out at them, like the carnivores versus the vegans. Uh, that's just online, honestly. Nobody in person ever has the balls to talk like that. No, no, that's that's the one thing. Being from Philadelphia too, it's like if you talk shit to me online, it's like, all right, come say that to my fucking face. I didn't know you were from Philly. Yeah. Nice. Um, that's I. That's a big like. I don't tolerate people talking shit online because it's like you would never say this in person and if you did um they would not that is true there there would be physical consequences so let me um provide a context though in which someone would a lot of times if someone if something goes a little bit too far in person it's because it's not it's not as if the online conversation caused it it created a context in which that person did not believe that the reputation would be damaged by doing it you know like if yeah. i go up and i hit someone randomly everyone's gonna think that's a crazy thing don't do that but if i go up and i hit someone who is for the past 10 days everyone online has been talking how much they hate them people believe that it's not an acceptable behavior right so it's not as if trolling is inherently bad and I think trolling can be really funny and it's not as if it's a right and a wrong way to do it. Yeah. If you're creating a, a climate in which it, it becomes acceptable to dehumanize that person that will have consequences in real life. Yeah. No. And I'm, I'm, I've been, I've been actually too active on, on Twitter recently and I'm like making a conscious effort to step back. Cause it's the, bad for your mental health. It really is. Uh, when you put the phone down, you, you don't <laughs> pay like, attention. You're like, why the fuck do I give a shit? Like, right? Oh my gosh. But it's like, it's a double-edged sword though. Like, you know, I get so much value. I would not be where I am today without Twitter. We would not have met up without Twitter. Yeah. No. Um, uh, it's a double-edged sword. And, and like, we know it going in, right? Like, there's no way for us to connect with our audience without being perpetually online. And there's no way for us to build our brand without being perpetually online. And there's no way for us to also deal with the crazy fact-checking world that is Bitcoin without having access to all of these people around the world. On the other hand, giving yourselves up to the audience like that is also opening us up to constant um, bombardment and um, dehumanization when people no longer see you as a person behind a phone, but as like a digital product with which they can critique and project their own problems with the world. No, I agree. And that's why I recommend liberally muting and blocking people yeah. for your mental health. Like seriously, it's changes been, life. No, it really does. Like you don't, once those people are out of your mentions, it's like, so your, your mental state is better. And people seem to have this idea that like, Oh look, I, I, I got blocked by this person and it just shows how great I am. Yeah, yeah. It's a badge of honor. It's like, mm, no, you did something that makes that person feel either unsafe or just really annoyed. Yeah. It's not something to be proud of. It's not something to be ashamed of if what you said is actually accurate or, or helpful, but it's also not a badge of honor. Yeah. In a lot of cases, like, no, it's, uh, 
No, I, I'd be a hypocrite. I've, I've used the block as a badge of honor before. Amen. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. We've all done, like, I can't think of a single dumb thing that I've made fun of someone else for saying about a blockchain that I have not at one point thought about a blockchain. Right. Yeah. We all go through it. It's hard not to be a hypocrite. It's not that it's hard not to be a hypocrite. You have to consciously not be a hypocrite, right? Yeah. So like the, the thing that's really fun about recording conversations and then writing them and publishing them is that people remember their conversations very, very differently. And they will email you very angry or they'll call you really angry and say, I never said that. I said this. And you send them the recording and they come back in shock, genuinely in shock because they remember the conversation very differently. And it, it just goes to show that I'm not any better than these people. I am sure that the way I remember some things is very much tainted by the vision of myself I want to have and the vision of the other person that I want to have. And I want to imagine that I was like the good guy in all of these scenarios. And so if someone is like really upset with you or if someone's like accusing you of being a hypocrite, at least for me, I try and really think about like, okay, what would make them say that if they weren't wrong? And sometimes they're wrong, but sometimes I'm like, oh, you know what? I was a little bit inconsistent there or whatever it is. Like all of us have these, these issues with the way we view ourselves versus the way that we exist. And we are not a blockchain. It's like the way we interpret <laughs> ourselves. Not yet. We're not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, someday we will all be a blockchain. And even then we will have to deal with the issue of translation. So, you know, like trying to constantly be humble is interoperability is right around the corner. Don't oh my worry. gosh. <laughs> I just want to murder someone every time they're like across all the blockchains. I'm like, why, why would I need all those blockchains? Right. I think just uh, why do we need all this block? Like, I don't think it's like physically possible to have all of them, if, especially if this stuff scales to a certain point. Like I, that's one thing I've been writing about more in the last three months. Like I think people severely discount, the amount of physical infrastructure that's needed to make these blockchains succeed if they are to be adopted by the masses. Oh, yeah. And so like we're talking about like hardware, uh, energy consumption, um, infrastructure revolution alongside the software. And that's why I think like Bitcoin wins out winner take most in the long run is because again, you're fighting for resources in the physical world too. Once these things hit a certain level of success, I mean, you're, they already are uh, the level of, uh, the level at which these networks op operate right now hasn't made the, the dash for physical infrastructure that obvious, but it'll become more obvious in time if these networks succeed. So that's the ICANN argument, right? Like there have been so many different attempts over the years to make alternatives to ICANN. It's not as if this is something that's new or that we don't aren't aware about the fact that like .org domains and .com domains are basically facilitated by a governance structure and there are people that have always wanted to operate outside of that. And in general, they tend to die off pretty quickly because... I can works. <laughs> so people go and, and they use what works. And I'm not saying that that's how things will be with money. I'm not a genius economist who can predict the future. But I can say that in general, a lot of times the reason that something is broken is not because no one has realized that and not because no one has thought of a better idea. It's getting other people to buy into your idea. That's the hard part. And until you can do that, the broken thing that a lot of people agree with generally works better than the like optimized thing that only a few people agree with. Yeah. I mean that, yeah. Network effects. That's like who can, thing. who can bootstrap the network effects quickly enough or the quickest, uh, not the quickest, the most sustainably, right? Yeah, Bitcoin is slow and steady. Very good point. Ways. Very good point. Um, very good point. Uh, I think there's, yes. 
uh, efficiently. And there, I think there is a time aspect to it too, right? Like, yes, you need to be at the right time in the right place, which yeah. is another uh, Salvador Dali thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about getting the right people to talk about you in the right timing. And that's when you have a legacy that is created as opposed to a blip in someone's art history textbook. I like that uh, comparison. And I, they, they're talking about Bitcoin on Capitol Hill a lot. They are. Right? They are. It's in, like they're talking about it on CNBC a lot. They're talking about it. Yeah, but that's not the, exactly the kind of people I want talking about it. And they're not talking about it in the way that I want them to talk about it. If I ruled the world, it'd be very different. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, they're talking about it. So that's like... That's good. That's a starting point. Whether, whether or not they're shitting on it or talking correctly about it, they're talking about it. And that's something I, the line I write in the newsletter all the time, slowly but surely, Bitcoin seeps further into the mind of the masses the psyche of the masses yeah but i don't want us to overestimate the impact of that right so like if you study the history of literature for example there are so many people that were huge writers in their day and everybody talked about them but we don't remember them at all and we don't really study them very much while shakespeare who at the time was um competitive writer but was certainly not the leading playwright of the time nor was he the most popular he wasn't the most sophisticated he wasn't even that original like if you look at a lot of the plots there are very similar plots from other plays at the time but we still talk about him a lot of it has to do with who is doing the talking when they're doing the talking a lot of circumstance around it that has nothing to do with the quality of the product right that's bitcoin launched in the the ashes of the last financial crisis etching that headline into the genesis block launching as tarp was being deployed i I hope so i hope that in 30 years from now it won't be that bitcoin is the one that is forgotten and there's another cryptocurrency that is widely used i don't think that's possible like i I think it's unlikely but it's not impossible no i think it's impossible right the flipping narrative right Mm -hmm. why are these why do these technologies exist they exist bitcoin the first successful implementation of this technology uh, came out of the gate and said, we want to be uh, money of the future, store value into perpetuity. You can bank on us that if you put your value into this system, one Bitcoin is going to equal one Bitcoin. It's going to produce blocks roughly every 10 minutes. That's the, the value prop of cryptocurrencies. The value prop of cryptocurrencies was defined when Bitcoin was launched successfully, in my mind. If Bitcoin is ever flippant, right? You immediately set a precedent that falsifies that narrative going forward. Like if Bitcoin gets flippant, why won't the one that takes it over get flippant? And why won't the one that after that get flippant? Why not? I don't know. It could totally happen. I mean, it could totally happen. If it does, like you destroy the whole value prop. Like you Yes, can, you do. It's so I think, like, and that's why I focus on Bitcoin and Bitcoin alone. I do think it's a one shot at, at this. I'm really interested in watching how it is people react to this idea of self-sovereign money. Precedent's important. Precedent's important. And I think that Bitcoin is probably today the most successful example. But I do think you, you just feel a very different vibe when you go into a Bitcoin event like BitDevs, which I love and I think everybody should try going at least once, um, versus some of the other events. And I'm not saying it's better or worse. I'm just saying it's different. And so there are just all different kinds of people in the world and people do all different kinds of things. And it's so fascinating to watch how people react to the same, like they have the same goal or they think they have the same goal, but they're going about it in completely different ways. And they are um, 
leaning into different kinds of incentive models and changing narratives in ways that they even may not recognize in themselves. Like I'm very fascinated by how it is that people are reacting to this concept. And I'm not necessarily sure we know how it is people will act in the future. Uh, I'll give an example that actually has nothing to do with Bitcoin. So uh, when I was working in the Middle East, a lot of some, something I would do is uh, I would scrape a bunch of, of websites. I would look at um, API data from like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, for example, and I would be looking for certain patterns for certain kinds of stories. And something that was very clear is that the way that young people were talking about uh, gender and sexuality was vastly different than the way that I talked about it or the way that my mother talked about it. The words they used were different. The things that they attributed value or um, negative connotations to were very different. And there were just all these different kinds of descriptions that just didn't fit into the norms of what I, what, what most people grew up with if you were a little bit older. And now a lot of those norms are very mainstream and it's actually considered uh, very uh, negative. It's, it's, consider, it's looked down upon to take a look at those norms and say like that's not normal. Like you should, like that's become the new normal. Yeah, I mean that's, it's generations coming and going, right? Everybody yeah, creates their own slang, their own way of like so, TikTok, gener- TikTok, like it scares the hell out of me. <laughs> TikTok <laughs> is just Snapchat. Don't even worry about it. The point being there is that like you think that something is like biology, right? Like man or woman is very simple if you're, you know, from my grandmother's generation. And then by the, like within one lifetime, you can see that a lot of people in the mainstream have a totally different idea of gender and sexuality. And that's okay. And that there's nothing wrong with it. It's just different. And I think that's how people are talking about money today. They're using a lot of terms and ideas that don't necessarily fit into the traditional norms. And I have no idea what will be mainstream and acceptable in a few years from now. Yeah, I would push back on that. Like, I mean, I think there's still a debate. I think I controversial to say, hmm. I think there's two genders. Um, <laughs> so and when it comes to money, uh, again, this comes down to like the money is a shared illusion trope that goes around, and that's false, in my opinion. Money, monetary goods, uh, have uh, certain properties that make them better monies over other alternatives, and people tend to coalesce on the monies when it's provided in a free market and there is free and open competition on the monetary goods with the properties that make them better monies. So I think that gender is a social construct that is definitely influenced by biology, but it's not limited to it and impacts what role it is you play in society. I'm a woman. I have the biology woman. I very much act like a woman, but there are some people that have a similar biology to me that behave very different in society and want to be perceived very different in society and have a very different function. So like it doesn't change their chromosomes, does not change their chromosomes, but exactly. It would very much change the way that you would be perceived or they would be perceived in public So money, like I might have a certain view of money and I might have a certain view of how people use money and what people want from money, but maybe some of the ideas that today I think are ridiculous or um, inaccurate might become a norm that would be very controversial to push back against in a few years. Mm -hmm. That I, I I see definitely an evolution of the way that we talk about money and I'm not sure what the end result will be. How can the money change so much though? At one point, don't we have to coalesce? We still have the same chromosomes, but we talk about gender different. Money 
it's it's not it's not that the physical property would be different. It's about what would be considered ethical usage and what would be considered unethical usage. What would be considered appropriate and what would be considered inappropriate. That can change, and it doesn't have to change the money itself. Yeah, but like money is a tool to conduct commerce, and if we're changing the money all the time, it's inefficient, though, right? Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is like it could, and I'm not saying this is a likely prospect. Just that it is in line with what we're talking about here. Um, it's entirely possible that someday it will be considered unethical to have private transactions. If it's the norm that everyone is having public transactions and everyone is being monitored, then it would be, maybe, could be, if we have a different narrative about what money is and how it should be used. It could be seen as unethical to have your own personal money. There are definitely cultures in which it is considered unethical to have private property. It's communism. (laughs) Not only communism. You can also have a certain hunter-gatherer societies, for example, that if you were to hoard your own food, it's considered like it will get you expelled from the tribe. Yeah, because... Like, who knows what it is that people will consider okay, acceptable in terms of money usage in the future. And that's why I think it's really important for us to talk about the wide range of ways that Bitcoin is used because we want to preserve the freedom to use it in a wide variety of ways. I think that that opens up the the floodgates to a terrible, slippery slope, though, right? Like, what there is objective truth in the world, right? There is the blockchain. It's how you interpret it. Right? But, like... What is wrong? What is right? And one plus one equals two. Yeah. Two plus two equals four. Uh, these pers- these uh, these UTXOs moved between these blocks. Um, I don't know, but I, I do. I think the argument that money is going to be changing as ephemerally as the cultural norms of like gender fluidity. I, I, I don't um, the cultural norms around quote unquote gender fluidity. Like I don't think. That's advantageous, or oh, uh, no one said it's or, good, or makes sense, or like we do so many things that don't make sense. Have you ever like tried to describe things that you see as very mundane to someone from a very very different culture? They will think you're insane. Like so many things we do, like they just sound crazy. Yeah, I mean, I come from Philadelphia. We have the word John <laughs> that can be referenced as a verb and adjective. Yeah, right. Uh, a noun, and nobody understands why. But if you're in Philly, you know what a John is. I'm talking to that John over there. And we're gonna go John out over there. That's the thing that I think frustrates me the most when we talk about Bitcoin is that people say, "Well, oh, this is rational. This is pragmatic. This is efficient." So clearly, that's what people will do. And it's like, have you ever met a person? We are not <laughs> rational, efficient creatures. We are creatures of norms and habits. Uh, yes, and this gets into, yes, we are creatures of action, right? And we mm-hmm. act in certain ways when thrown into certain incentive systems. And again, that's why I argue Bitcoin, I think, will be winner take most of the long runs because given the environment of Bitcoin existing, it provides uh, a monetary tool that is superior to the alternatives that exist today. And just, again, not, even, not even rational human beings, just uh, human beings acting in their own self-interest will coalesce around this. Human beings do a really terrible job of understanding what is in their self-interest. We act against our own self-interest all the time. What, I mean, in what ways? 
Like, for example, someone would, it would be beneficial for someone to study something in college, but they want to study drama instead, and so they study drama instead of engineering. Or it would be beneficial for someone to marry someone that they have a really great friendship with and want to like, have very similar life goals, but there's a really hot person over there, and so they're going to try and go for the hot person. All the time, we act against our own self-interest in the long run for short-term gain. The idea that we wouldn't do the same thing with money is hilarious. Of course we will doesn't mean we have to. We should try and strive to do what is best for us in the long run. But just because something is good for us in the long run doesn't mean it will be the most popular choice. Agreed. But it comes down to individual actions, right? And yeah. collection of those individual actions and your, and not you, but um, the uh, belief that uh, most individuals don't act in their self-interest. I don't know if I can get down with that. I don't think it's that most individuals act in their self-interest. I think it's sporadically people are unpredictable in whether or not they will perceive what is actually in their best self-interest or not. And whether they can perceive that is actually totally uh, subjective. Like a lot of people thought going into college and going tens of thousands of dollars into debt uh, was in their self-interest and are finding out pretty, pretty abruptly that it was not. So another really fun thing about humans is, did you know that if you ask someone a question and you want them to write down the answer, not to tell you verbally, if you ask them to write it with their left hand and write it with their right hand, you will probably get a different answer. The same person, the same question. People, like the way your biology works, like... Well, I would, just off the top of my head, I would think like, I'm right-handed so I could write more clearly and more with my right hand than my left hand, right? Yeah, but it's more about like right brain, left brain. Like if I were mm. to stand on the opposite end of a person, if someone's like being really difficult, not giving me the answer I want in an interview, and I just like change the scenario of the interview, like I just move around, it's very likely that I can get a different answer just by changing which ear they're hearing me through. Right. How are your, you think again, going back to how you pitch Bitcoin, like pitching it to a certain personality type and connecting with them. Yeah. Where they will most likely react. Yeah. And also our biology, right? Like we are not, um, finite singular beings. We're like this crazy connection of all these neurons and, and chemicals and like the way that we react to something in one context could be totally a different reaction if we were in a different context so like just the idea that we will always be able to make our own best choices is funny but we can strive to continually educate ourselves as we think about this idea of being our own bank and we can look for scenarios in which we set ourselves up for success the best that we can knowing that it is not going to enable some kind of utopia in which everyone makes great financial decisions i can get down with that i agree but I think the, uh, again, like long trend of all of this is that it will, given the choice, most humans will, will act in, in their self, like Maslow hierarchy of needs exist. I right? think if given the choice in the right context, a lot of people will act in their own self-interest and not mess that up. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. Damn, we're almost three hours in here. Okay, I'm sorry. Don't say sorry. Don't say sorry at all. You're not wasting any time. This is like, I'm like, my mouth's running dry here. It's been fun. Yeah, I've had a good time too. What do you think that we should leave people with when we we Uh, think about the future of Bitcoin? Let's not even talk about Bitcoin. Let's just talk about this conversation. We disagreed on a lot. We agreed on a lot. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. Not at each other's throats. That's a thing. You can talk with people you disagree with. You can have civil conversations. And you find out that you actually agree with them on a lot more than you disagree. You just maybe disagree about the best best method for it. Yeah. And it's okay to disagree. Yeah. It's okay. 
I really hope that you're right in most cases, except for like the world going on fire. I very much hope that most people act in their own best interest and that Bitcoin continues to be the rampant success story that it's been so far. Leah, I don't want to scare you, but coming from the financial industry, the people running our our monetary systems and financial industry have no fucking idea what they're doing. I don't want to scare you, but coming from the media industry and people that control our information, they also don't have any idea. (laughs) (laughs) So this is... This is a call, and again, like, uh, know yourself, right? Yeah. Be able to admit when you're wrong or know yourself and try to be truthful to yourself. And I think that's, again, as we transition to this digital age, that's going to be imperative, right? The sovereign individual, know yourself. And the way, uh, the best way uh, that you can dissect information and think critically. Yep. (sighs) Do you have any parting notes? Um. We're going into what could be potentially another bull run. And I would like to urge everyone to remember that there is Bitcoin will still be around, at least for the foreseeable future, and that they should be making choices that are relevant to their needs and their own financial status and not be scared about missing out. I think that the fun thing about Bitcoin is investing in yourself long-term and learning and to, and only engaging with the technology to the level that you are comfortable and skilled enough to do safely. I co-sign that very, very uh, hardly. Like, do not rush into this. Learn about it. Mm-hmm. We all talk about not your keys, not your Bitcoins. Practice making wallets. Know what you're doing. It's so fun, you guys. Even I'm the worst. I'm really the worst when it comes to technology. And I've almost pretty much, I'm like pretty comfortable with my hardware wallet now. Like you can do it. It just takes time. It takes practice. Practice makes perfect. It, it, like, it just take the first step and practice. Create a wallet. Write down the seed phrase. Move a very minuscule amount of Bitcoin to it. That's well. Wipe the wallet. Uh, and recover it and then start standing some, uh, a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger transactions, and then uh, you will get more comfortable. Lee, it's been incredible conversation. It's been the longest podcast we've had on here in months, I think. And Thank again, you. It was really fun. And you freaks out there. We disagree and agree on a lot. Civil conversations exist. <laughs> Let's have more of them. Peace and love. <laughs>